and acts as a whole. Without being too picky on the precise nature of what has been gathered, bundled, and packaged together. When we say that something is social, or has a social dimension, we mobilize one set of features, so to speak, march and step together, even though it might be composed of radically different types of entities. This unproblematic use of the word is fine, so long as we don't confuse the sentence, is social what goes together, with the one that says, social de designates a particular kind of stuff. My emphasis. Uh, with the former, we simply mean that we are dealing with a routine state of affairs, those binding together is the crucial aspect, while the second designates a sort of substance whose main feature lies in its differences with other types of materials. We imply that some assemblages are built out of social stuff instead of physical, biological, or, e or economical blocks, much like the houses of the three little pigs were made of straw, wood, and stone." Quote. The central target of Latour's actor network theory is what he calls the sociology of the social. The sociology of the social would be that form of sociology that suggests that the social is composed of a special sort of stuff, social stuff, not unlike phlogiston, right, that, up, that holds people together in a particular way. Generally, sociologists of the social appeal to power, social forces, signs, language, norms, and human intentions. By contrast, Latour argues that all of these agencies are rather weak and fail to account for why the social assemblages of humans and non-humans, are held together in the way that they're held together. In place of the sociology of the social, Latour instead proposes a sociology of associations. The social for Latour is nothing more than associations between human and non-human entities. And sometimes, many times, is composed solely of associations between non-human entities. And this includes semiotic components, human intentions, norms, laws, but also technologies, animals, natural entities like rivers and mountains, and so on. Objects are thus constructed or built out of other objects. As Harmon puts it in Guerrilla Metaphysics, we have a universe made up of objects, wrapped in objects, wrapped in objects, wrapped in objects. The reason we call these objects substances is not because they are ultimate or indestructible, but simply because none of them can be identified with any or even all of their relations with other entities. None of them is a pristine kernel of substantial uni unity, unspoiled by interior parts. We never reach some final layer of tiny components that explains everything else, but enter instead into indefinite regress of parts and holes. Every object is both a substance and a complex of relations. Objects are built out of other objects. They are emergent from other objects yet take on an internal structure of their own that renders them independent from and irreducible to the objects out of which they are built. Latour will argue that it is non-human actors that do the lion's share of work in associating human beings with one another in social assemblages, and that signs, intentions, norms, laws, and so on, while contributing to the formation of these assemblages or objects, are weak tea in maintaining certain assemblages or associations between humans. As Latour writes, quote, the shepherd and his dog remind you nicely of social relations, but when you see her flock behind bar a barbed wire fence, you wonder, where is the shepherd and her dog? Although the sheep are kept in the field by the piercing effect of the wire barbs more obstinately than by the barking of the dog. There is no doubt that you have become a couch potato in front of your TV set, thanks largely to the remote control that allows you to surf from channel to channel. And yet there is no re resemblance between the causes of your immobility 
immobility in the portion of your action that has been carried out by the infrared signal, even though there is no question that your behavior has been permitted by the TV command. Between a car driver that slows down near a school because she has seen the 30 mile per hour yellow sign and a car driver that slows down because he wants to protect the suspension of his car threatened by the bump of a speed trap, is the difference big or small, Luther asks. Big, since the obedience of the first has gone through morality, symbols, signposts, yellow paint, <laughs> while the other has passed through the same list to which uh, has been added a carefully designated concrete slab. But it is small, since they have both obeyed something. The first driver to a rarely manifested altruism. If she had not slowed down, her heart would have been broken by the moral law. The second driver to a largely distributed selfishness. If he had not slowed down, his suspension would have been broken by a concrete slab. Should we say that, the only, no, that only the first connection is social, moral, and symbolic, but that the second is objective and material? No. But if we say that both are social all the way through, but they aren't uh, collected or associated together by the very work of road designers, one cannot call oneself a social scientist to pursue only some links, the moral, legal, and symbolic ones, and stop as soon as there is some physical relation interspersed in between the others." Latour's point is that if we wish to account for the fabric of the social, of those assemblages that exist, we have to take into account the role that non-human entities play in organizing particular patterns of relations and behavior. Each example contrasts more or less a humanist explanation references power, signs, laws, and morals, and a non-humanist explanation. Thus, in the first example, Latreur uh, contrasts uh, control of the sheep through power, that is, the role of the shepherd and the sheepdog to the sheep, and control of the sheep through a barbed wire fence. This example is particularly nice because it shows that the sociology of, asso of associations, uh, for the sociology of associations, the behavior of the sheep is every bit as much a sociological question as the behavior of humans. The second example contrasts human intentions with unintended consequences of technology, becoming a couch potato. And the third example contrasts agency through law and signs with agency through non-human actors such as the speed bomb. At this point, we encounter an unexpected uh, point of convergence between the thought of later Sartre, Latour, and Marshall McLuhan. In understanding media, Marshall McLuhan famously argues that the essence of media consists in being an extension of the human. A medium is anything that extends human bodies and senses in one way or another. Consequently, a car or a mountain pass for McLuhan is no less a medium than a newspaper. As Ian Bogust and I argue, there is no reason to restrict this conception of media to humans, but rather a medium can be treated as any entity or object that extends another object, whether the object being extended is a non-human object being extended by another non-human object, or a non-human object being extended by a human. The saturation of the climate with uh, oxygen millions of years ago, for example, extended the domain of certain microbes, just as the streetlight extends the domain of insects, like in, in unhappy ways, usually, for those insects. Likewise, a human can be a medium for another human by extending the first human in a variety of ways, as in the case of a congressional member extending the reach of his or her constituents, often in unhappy ways. What McLuhan wishes to investigate is the manner in which various media structure relationships among entities, generating a sort of negentropy, neg where pattern is resistant to change. In this respect, science, text, technologies, animals, planets, sunlight, films, plants, 
languages, signs, infrastructures, laws, communications, technologies, theories, leaders, partners, universities, symposiums, are all instances of mediums that extend entities in particular ways, structuring patterns of organization in a variety of ways. And so humans are a medium for grass to extend its imperialistic domination of the world. For example, patterns of urban and suburban sprawl in Georgia and Atlanta perhaps extend or enhance certain weather patterns, allowing for stronger tornadoes to form. In Laws and Media, McLuhan will argue that each medium enlarges or enhances another object, while also limiting or unenhancing another dimension of the object. I'll discuss this point in greater detail with respect to class momentarily. But for the moment, it suffices to point out that these relations of affording and constraining in relation between media, broadly construed, are the fountainhead through which the emergence of hyperobjects are rendered possible. Returning to Latour, the point is not that we should ignore intentions, laws, signs, morals, not that we should restrict our field of analysis to non-humans but that we ought to expand our field of analysis if we truly wish to understand associations. Along these lines, Latour will argue that non-human objects should be treated as full-blown actors in associations or assemblages. As he writes, quote, the main reason why objects had no chance to play any role before was not due to the definition of the social used by sociologists, or not only, but also to the very definition of actors and agencies most often chosen. If action is limited a priori to what is uh, intentional, meaning or to what intentional, meaningful humans do, it is hard to see how a hammer, a basket, a door closer, a cat, a rug, a mug, a list, or a tag could act. One of the famous Latour litanies. They might exist in the domain of material causal relations, but not in the reflexive symbolic domain of social relations. By contrast, if we stick to our decision to start uh, from the controversies about actors and agencies then anything that does, uh, that does modify a state of affairs by making a difference is an actor, or if it has no figuration yet, an actor. Thus, the question to ask about any agent are simply the following. Does it make some difference in the course of some other agent's action or not? Is there some trial that allows someone to detect this difference? And we've already seen there are some problems with Latour's thesis here. It is important to understand Latour's strategy now, to understand Latour's strategy here in proposing that non-humans are full-blown actors and that action is not the exclusive domain of humans, intentions and symbolic and meaning. The standard rejoinder to Latour's proposal to treat non-humans as actors is that this proposal can only be metaphorical because non-humans do not act, but only behave. And because non-humans do not have meanings or intentions, the rejoinder goes, we can only be speaking metaphorically when we say non-humans act. Non-humans, the critic continues, can only act insofar as humans project meaning and intentions on them. In response to this criticism, Latour's strategy is not to argue that non-humans, non-human objects have intentions and meanings, but to question the degree to which human actors have intentions and meanings. As Latour puts it elsewhere in his essay, A Collective of Humans and Non-Humans in Pandora's Hope, what interests me is the composition of action marked by the lines that get longer at each step. Who performs the, agent, uh, the action? Agent 1 plus Agent 2 plus Agent 3? Action is a property of associated entities. Agent 1 is allowed, authorized, enabled, afforded by the others. The chimp plus the sharp uh, stick reach, not reaches, the banana. 
the attribution of one actor of the uh, role of prime mover in no way weakens the necessity of a composition of forces to explain the action. It is by mistake or unfairness that our headlines read, man flies, woman goes into space. Flying is a property of, uh, of the whole association of entities that include airports and planes, launch pads, and ticket counters. B-52s do not fly, the U.S. Air Force flies. Action is simply not a property of humans, but of associations of actants. And this is the second meaning of technical mediation. Provisional actorial roles may be attributed to actants only because actants are in their process of exchanging competences, offering one another new possibilities, new goals, new functions. Just as McLuhan observes, objects afford and constrain one another. Latour's point here is twofold. Uh, on the one hand, action never occurs in a vacuum, but requires an assemblage of actants to take place at all. As Sartre argues in his Critique of Dialectical Reason, in order to act at all, we must transform our body into a material medium so as to act on other material bodies. Yet in doing so, we are in turn acted upon by both the material bodies we act on, but also products of our productions come to act on us. As Sartre will put it, this is, quote, that, that terrible aspect of man in which he is the product of his product, end quote. On the other hand, and perhaps more importantly, we, can speak unequivoc we can't speak unequivocally about intentions coming from human beings. Did the intention to become a couch potato and channel surfer issue from the man sitting, behind, uh, sitting in his lazy boy? Uh, or did it issue from the remote or from the combination of the two? We can't answer these questions. Therefore, in a manner similar to Gilbert Ryle and his, uh, in the concept of mind, we must, in our social and political theory, first act, uh, exercise the ghost in the machine that continues to haunt our social and political thought by treating intentionality and meaning as issuing solely from human agency as an a priori given. Indeed, how often do people act based on reasons and intentions? Isn't it rather the case that we fabricate reasons and intentions after we act as grounds of our action, such that these reasons uh, and intentions are not grounds of our action, but rather the result of our action? Isn't this precisely what fMRI scans show, where the decision is made prior to us becoming conscious of the action or reasons for the, for the action? If this is the case, then all things being equal, we should abandon the idea that meaning and intention is the sole domain of humans, because humans never had this capacity to begin with as an a priori given. Just as we no longer speak of a homunculus in the mind, we should abandon the notion that intentions and meanings solely belong to humans. All of this, of course, gives rise to the question of, of whether human agency is possible. Are we mere puppets of assemblages, or is some sort of self-directing praxis or agency possible? The point here is not that we must uh, reject agency, but rather that we must not cheat and treat something as given an a priori that is not given an a priori. Agency is not something that we have. It is not, so, not an a priori given, as the Kantians would argue, but rather in a manner strangely resonant with Baidu's theory of the subject, it is something that we must accomplish or produce. Put differently, agency is something rare and unusual, not the norm. It is an accomplishment that must come to be, not something that is already there. But more about this another time. In light of this detour through Latour and McLuhan, we are now in a position to examine the way in which entities like class emerge as hyperobjects. In the Critique of Dialectical Reason, Sartre will present an extraordinary uh, example of the role played by non-humans 
referred to by him as anti-practice and the practico inert, or the world of worked matter that takes on an intentionality of its own, which humans must adapt as they navigate their world. Anti-praxis, the practico inert, or counter-finality, structures the possibilities we encounter in our world through a series of material structures. As Graham Harmon recently put it, quote, we are probably more defined not by the choices that we make, but by the choices that we face. Anti-practice, or the practical inert, is one of the primary ways in which we come to be faced with choices, and therefore functions as a catalytic operator through which new hyper-objects, collective relations, emerge. Thus, in a vein very similar to Harmon's, Sartre writes, quote, at the origin of this membership in class being, there are passive syntheses of materiality, and these syntheses represent both the general conditions of social activity and our most immediate, crudest objective reality. They already exist. They are simply crystallized practices of previous generations. Individuals find an existence already sketched out for them at birth. They have uh, their positions in life and their personal development assigned to them by their class. What is assigned to them is a type of work and a fundamental attitude, as well as a determinate provision of material and intellectual work. It is a strictly limited field of possibilities. Thus, Claude Lonsman is right when he says, quote, a working woman who earns 25,000 francs a month and uh, contracts chronic eczema by handling Dop shampoo eight hours a day is wholly reduced to her work, her fatigue, her wages, and material impossibilities that these wages assign to her, the impossibility of eating properly, of buying shoes, of sending her child to the country, of satisfying her modest wishes. Impression does not reach the oppressed in a particular sector of their life. It constitutes this life in its totality. For Sartre, it is not, as Althusser argues, that the woman as, a uh, woman as a subject is an effective ideology of a hailing that makes her what she is, which isn't to say that this doesn't also take place. But rather, she is caught in the gravitational orbit of another entity, a vampiric, devouring entity that is a hyper-object or object in its own right, class. Indeed, the woman translates this object class in her own unique way, yet she also encounters this object in a manner akin to ocean surf, and undertows that continuously restrict her possibilities of actualization and praxis. Yet, okay, all right, so I have a lengthy quote here that uh, talks about uh, the uh, emergence of the lathe as a new technology during the 19th century. And what the lathe did, it created a division between skilled and unskilled labor that also worked with uh, the family structure that existed at the time. And so the sons of, uh, of the skilled laborers who could use the lathe uh, could, uh, <coughs> would, would get apprenticed within this class. And so we got a new structure of class emerging, not through the intentions of anybody in particular, but through this particular technology that sorted people in a particular way. And so we have a nice uh, sort of uh, confluence of objects at work uh, in this particular situation that is composed of the lathe, these human bodies, these families, and certain semiotic entities as well, as well producing that class. And so the thesis here is that we have to take into account the heterogeneity of these objects at all scales, whether semiotic or material or technological, in order to understand these structures and act on them. All right, so thank you very much. And I'll ask you to hold your questions uh, see how much time we have at the end. Uh, our next speaker, Nathan Brown. Uh, is, uh,
assistant professor at Davis, Carl Davis, did his PhD here, finished in 2008. Uh, it has two book projects underway. One is about blue wax, rationalist empiricism in contemporary French philosophy. And the other is the materials, technoscience and poetry at the limits of fabrication. Uh, his title today, The Seventh Case, The Time of the Dice Throw in Afterfinity. Um, so there's a, a chart loading um, on the projector, uh, but I'm not going to get to that until close to uh, the end of my presentation. Um, but like uh, Eleanor and Ian and Tim, um, I'm also a literary critic. Um, so I'm going to begin by focusing on a certain figure um, that crops up in Mesu and Deleuze and Bavieu, um, a figure both of of time and of change, uh, the figure of the dice throw. All fraud emits a throw of the dice. Time throws the die, but only to shatter it. What is at stake in the displacement of one of these statements by the other, from Mallarmé to Mayasu? Since the end of the 19th century, since Mallarmé and also since Nietzsche, the figure of the dice throw has been a dominant image of thought, one of the major topoi within and through which philosophy has not only tested its powers of conceptual production, but also reflected upon its own operations. If we follow the development of French philosophy through the late 20th century, we know how this figure has been taken up from Nietzsche and Mallarmé and transformed by two of the most important inheritors of their thought, Gilles Deleuze and Alain Baudieu. Today I want to position the role of the dice throw in the thought of Quentin Mayasu with regard to these thinkers, and I want to consider its implications for the thinking of time, which is not yet fully articulated within his first book. An image of thought, Deleuze argues, in the central chapter of Difference and Repetition, is a field of philosophical presuppositions, a set of conceptual habits against which a philosopher will have to engage in a rigorous struggle, will have to destroy, in fact, in order to articulate a new problem. If, for a philosophical epoch running from the late 19th to the late 20th century, the aleatory play of the dice throw seemed to constitute a liberation from both the apodictic certainty of the cogito and the form of judgment proper to Kantian critique, it is by destroying the image of the dice throw in turn that Mayasu attempts to liberate contingency from chance and to bind what he calls absolute contingency to a thinking of what he calls absolute time. The problem of the dice throw is the problem of the relation between chance and necessity, and of the mediation of that metaphysical relation by the calculatory regime of probability, which would seem to govern the distribution of throws constitutive of the game, or any set of chances. The task of thinking this problem, within the tradition emerging from Mallarmé and Nietzsche, is to sustain the operation of chance against either its subsumption by probability or its cancellation by necessity. For Deleuze, after Nietzsche, to think the dice throw is to think the eternal return. The differential outcomes among a series of formally distinct throws, which would normally be subsumed by probability, return to and repeat within a single unique cast. It is the ontological univocity of this gesture its qualitative power, the cast, which affirms the whole of chance at once, 
quote, the throws are formally distinct, writes Deleuze in the final pages of Difference and Repetition. But with regard to an ontologically unique throw, while the, while the outcomes implicate, displace, and recover their combinations in one another through the unique and open space of the univocal, unquote. In the work of Deleuze, the name of the univocal, univocal affirmation of chance in the unique throw, which selects and distributes difference across the infinite multiplicity of modally distinct series, is the virtual. For Baudieu, on the other hand, every throw of the dice is not only modally, but ontologically distinct. Every event, every genuine rupture with the state of a given situation is entirely discontinuous, neither folded within nor expressive of a virtual whole. There is no whole of chance for Baudieu, no one throw within which all throws are included, since the all it exists. Every throw, every event, in its imminent singularity, constitutes a chance. And the most we can say, to speak like Lacan, is that there are some chances. It is the subject in Baudieu's philosophy who says this. Whereas Deleuze thinks the vital power of the virtual to distribute, multiply, recollect, and affirm divergent series that eternally return, for Baudieu it is the place of the subject to decide upon what passes at the impasse of formalization. The subject decides the undecidable existence of a singular chance, one that is affirmed by neither the state of the situation nor by the thought of any whole. As usual, it's the resources of transfinite mathematics which undergird Baudieu's approach to the dice throw and its difference from that of Deleuze. For Deleuze, a quantitative multiplicity of numerical results must be recovered within the qualitative force of a unique throw in order to affirm chance, because otherwise the quantitative distribution of results would tend toward equilibrium as the series of throws approached infinity, thereby resulting in the domination of the difference by the same. For Baudieu, on the other hand, this move from quantity to quality is unnecessary to save chance, since quantity itself is rendered inconsistent by the intotality of the transfinite. The rigorously thinkable inconsistency of the quantitative multiple, its ineradicable excess and errancy, is what enables the thinking of an incalculable chance that cannot be affirmed as a whole for Baudieu. Mm -hmm. So to summarize the end, if according to Deleuze, chance is the function of a qualitative disparity proper to the being of the whole, according to Baudieu, it is the function of a quantitative inconsistency due to the fact that the whole has no being. Hmm. The position of the problem of the dice throw within the work of Contemnaissu is established through a sort of disjunctive synthesis of rationalist and empiricist traditions, whereby Maissu reroutes Baudieu's mathematical ontology through the problem of induction articulated by Hume. This is the operation of the fourth chapter of After Finitude. For Maissu, the importance of Hume's skeptical critique of causality resides in its latent speculative implications, the possibility of unlinking the future from the preconditions of the present or the past. Hume, states Maissu, is the first to seriously maintain that from a determinate situation, one can never infer a priori the ensuing situation, the indefinite multiplicity of futures uh, being invisible without contradiction. For Maysu, the radical core of the problem of induction is not just the possibility of thinking the contingency of any given event, but of thinking the absolute contingency of the laws of nature. It is a question, he writes, 
of justifying the effective existence of a contingency not only of events submitted to laws, but of the laws themselves. So in attempting to sustain a speculative rather than skeptical approach to this problem, Mesu's task is to counter an argument from probability that would, comprise, uh, that would compromise the rational coherence of such an absolute contingency. Uh, and the arg argument from probability goes like this. If it were the case that the laws were actually contingent, why wouldn't they change all the time, or at least with some observable frequency? If the manifest persistence of the laws of nature is due to no real necessity, but rather purely contingent, it seems highly improbable that they should retain the perennial stability that they so obviously exhibit. According to Mayasu, this argument implicitly relies upon a certain figure of the dice throw. If we identify the set of all possible laws, and therefore of all possible universes, and Graham's summary was helpful on this point this morning, um, if we identify those with the faces of a universal die, and if we think time as a succession of dice throws, the results of which are a matter of chance, of aleatory selection, among a set of pre-established cases, it would seem extremely improbable that the same face of the die would turn up over and over again, that entirely contingent laws should remain stable across millennia. And this probabilistic aberration renders absurd any argument for the contingency of laws forcing us to posit that there must be some sufficient reason that the constants of our experience remain constant. In other words, such an argument from probability implies that the die must be loaded. There must be a sufficient reason for the apparently inexorable persistence with which our universal die always turns up the same face. Mason's reply to this argument is that it improperly extends a form of probabilistic reasoning which is applicable to events in, internal to a universe, to the universe itself. And he appeals to transfinite mathematics in order to show why no such totality is thinkable. The rationality of the argument for probability depends upon establishing a determinate set of cases, a fixed number of sides of the die, even if that number is infinite, according to which we might assess the probability of any particular case or side continuing to turn up. But we cannot say that the number of cases is infinite, since transfinite set theory makes it possible to pose the question, which infinity? And we cannot justifiably limit their number, since what Mayasu terms Cantorian in totality prohibits the construction of a set of all sets, or a total universe of cases. We can thus say rationally, through a clear and distinct understanding of the problem, rather than any lack thereof, that we have no reason no criteria of selection or principle of delimitation by which to establish the number of sides or cases of our universal die. The figure or image of this die thus evaporates into the abyss of inconsistent multiplicity. Time, through this reconfiguration of the problem, is no longer thought as a succession of throws which puts into motion a number of possible cases. Rather, Mayasu accords to time, this is a quotation, the capacity to bring forth new laws which were not potentially contained in some fixed set of possibles, the capacity to create new cases rather than merely actualizing potentialities that eternally pre-exist their full duration. Time, writes Mayasu, creates the possible at the very moment it comes to pass, it brings forth the possible as it does the real, it inserts itself into the very throw of the die to bring forth a seventh case, in principle unforeseeable, which breaks with the fixity of potentialities. Time throws the die, 
but only to shatter it, to multiply its faces beyond any calculus of possibilities." Unquote. Here, contingency, rather than, shape, rather than chance, is thought not by the figure of the dice throw, but rather by its disfiguration. A genuinely new philosophy, Deleuze writes, would have to, quote, discover its authentic repetition in a thought without image, even at the cost of the greatest destructions and the greatest demoralizations, and a philosophical obstinacy with no allied paradox, one which would have to renounce both the form of representation and the element of common sense, as though thought could begin to think and continually begin again, only when liber liberated from the image and its postulates, unquote. What does it entail to shatter the dice throw to destroy an image of thought whose presuppositions have dominated the thinking of chance in 20th century French philosophy? Among other things, it entails the destruction of a metaphysics of chance that we find operative in two different registers in the work of Deleuze and Baudieu. For Deleuze to think the dice throw as eternal return requires a thinking of two instances, two worlds, or two tables, as he puts it, midnight and midday, the sky and the earth, quality and quantity, becoming and the being of becoming, the throw and the numerical result. The first belongs to chance, the second to necessity in each case. And the return draws these together in a disjunctive synthesis under the name of what Deleuze calls chance necessity. Deleuze expels the principle of non-contradiction from his philosophical program, chance necessity, right, is a contradiction. Mm -hmm even as he affirms the principle of sufficient reason as the qualitative disparity of the virtual. He can thus affirm the contradiction of chance necessity as the very essence of that disparity. For Meissu, on the other hand, to uphold the principle of non-contradiction is an essential condition of a post-metaphysical rationality liberated from the principle of sufficient reason. And the disjunctive synth uh, synthesis of chance necessity is impassable by those conceptual standards. To shatter the die amid throw is to interrupt this synthesis against the eternal return and against the Nietzschean figure developed by Pierre Klosowski of the vicious circle, and also against the stoic ethics of the amor fatum. It is to think that which breaks with necessity not only as a clinamen, random deviation or swerve, mm. but as the emergence of a new atom on a tangent line. The seventh case that breaks entirely with any selection among the already given. Whereas the whole of chance for Deleuze depends upon the vital affirmation imminent to a life, and whereas the event for Baudieu must be inscribed in a situation by the retroactive decision of subject, contingency, as it is thought by Meissu, is unbound from any affirmation or decision from any principle of selection whatsoever. It is in this sense that contingency is properly thought as an absolute but one which depends upon neither a vitalist metaphysics nor a metaphysics of the subject, both of which support a metaphysics of chance. If chance is the name of what is affirmed in Deleuze, of what is decided upon in Baudieu, then to shatter the dice throw as an image of thought is indeed to abolish chance, not in the name of necessity, but rather of absolute contingency. Abolition of chance gives way not only onto absolute contingency, but onto the binding of absolute contingency to absolute time. According to Mallarmé, all thought emits a throw of the dice, and the, throw of the, and the throw of the dice will never abolish chance. 
According to Mayasu, it is time that throws the die, but only to shatter it. Absolute time abolishes chance in the name of absolute contingency, and by doing so, it displaces thought as a malone, as the, as the agent of the throw. The question posed by this displacement is, how is it possible then to think such a time without reinscribing it within the time of thought, within the time of the correlation, the time of life, or the time of the subject? How is it possible, that is, to think time as an absolute? As is always the case with Mayasu's work, if we want to take this problem seriously, we have to approach it methodologically. Crucially, the, argument, the argumentative itinerary of afterfinitude is not pursued, as in the case of Badiou's philosophy, through the positing of axioms and the, and the deduction of their consequences, nor through the assertion of critical and metaphysical principles operating as the frame or formal basis for a systematic construction. On the contrary, afterfinitude operates through a method of indirect argumentation by which thought finds itself forced towards certain conclusions by the consequences of relations between discourses that are in some sense alien to the speculative vocation of Mayasu's project. Crucially, the principle of factiality, uh, the principle of absolute contingency, articulated in chapter three of afterfinitude is not arrived at through deduction, nor through an axiomatic assertion. Uh, nor through metaphysical intuition. Rather, it is the product of what Mayasu calls, after Aristotle, an anhypothetical demonstration. It's, it's anhypothetical because it doesn't rely upon form of reason, which says, if such and such is the case, then such and such will follow. Right? Um, the principle of factiality and the ontology of absolute contingency that it compels emerges from the relation between positions of Mayasu's philosophical opponents, from their intersystemic so he doesn't take position, that is to say. He follows the relation among his assistant, uh, his uh, opponent's positions and um, follows other mm. consequences, right? That's how it's anti-hypothetical. It emerges, that is to say, from what Althusser would call um, a conjunctural encounter, from a field of philosophical forces and constraints uh, in which thought is already immersed. The case of absolute time elucidates the stakes of this method. The principle of factiality, produced through an anhypothetical demonstration, in turn forces a confrontation with the problem of induction, or more precisely, with efforts to resolve the skeptical consequences of that problem through probabilistic argumentation. Implicit in such argumentation is the figure of the dice throw, and Mayasu's gesture is to expose this figure to the rational consequences transfinite mathematics. It's this exposure of one discourse to another that shatters the image of the dice throw. And this shattering, the abolition of chance by contingency, operates under the sign of time. By grafting the Humean thesis onto that of Cantorian in totality, that's the way Mayasu describes this operation, we are forced to replace the succession of dice throws, the time of chance, with the singular shattering of the die, the time of contingency. Speaking methodologically, we can say that the term absolute time is the sign of an encounter which forces thought. In this case, the encounter of skept uh, skeptical philosophy, the problem of induction, and speculative mathematics, Cantor's transfinite mathematics. And it is the sign of this particular thought insofar as it specifies the imminence of a change which interrupts the succession of throws 
a change that interrupts succession itself as the only thinkable structure of change, the only thinkable structure of time. So the chart begins to come into play around here. In a paper delivered in Zagreb in 2009, um, and which is also forthcoming in volume The Speculative Turn, edited by Graham Levi, uh, Martin Haglin argues that the term absolute time is inappropriate insofar as to think such a possible interruption of succession is, quote, not to think the implications of time, but to posit an instance that has power over time, since it may stop and start succession at will, unquote. For Haglin, quote, contingency presupposes succession, since there can be no contingency without the unpredictable passage from one moment to another. What Hagelin refers to here as contingency is what Mayasu calls chance. Indeterminacy thought through the image of time as a series of successive throws or successive chances. For Mayasu, the problem of evading this image is not to think one throw, as in Deleuze, or a decision on a throw, as in Badiou, but to think of the possible interruption of any throw, insofar as their series depends upon the time of succession. And what merits the name of time in this case is the imminence of an alteration or of change, thought in a manner that subtracts this alteration um, from either the vital power of the one or a constitutive dependence upon a retroactive decision. So this is why the, the die is shattered in Mesu, right? It doesn't depend upon one throw or a throw. In fact, we would have to think three times, indexed to three philosophical problems, to properly distribute the sense of the term time in afterfinitude. So this is what's on the chart. The first would be a correlational time, as a condition of all possible uh, appearances, of all possible experience. The time, as Kant says, that does not adhere to the objects themselves, rather merely to the subject that intuits them. We've got one and a half pages, is that okay? Um, the problem posed to philosophy by this form of time, perhaps theorized most acutely in the work of Adrian Johnston, is that of the split subject, the subject of transcendental philosophy, split between temporal self-affection, uh, the temporal self-affection of inner sense, and the timelessness of the numinal eye, which is inaccessible to self-reflection. Second, there would be a diachronic time, Mayasu uses the term diachronicity, involving a temporal dis discrepancy between thinking and being. This is a cosmological temporality of which empirical science informs us and which, according to Mayasu, poses a problem for correlationist philosophies. This is what he calls the problem of ancestrality or the paradox of manifestation. Finally, an absolute time, which operates outside the purview of both the correlational time of the subject and the diachronic temporality of empirical science. Such time neither constitutes a form of intuition nor obeys any law, Rather, insofar as it is the time of absolute contingency or imminent change, it has to be thought as capable of the lawless destruction of every law and of any form. The problem with which the thought of such a time poses to philosophy is the problem of induction. The problem of the possible discontinuity of the laws, or even of discontinuity per se. And the complex relation of this problem to the thinking of absolute time is one of Mayasu's most notable inferences, I think. To return to the problem of how we can think such a time without inscribing it within the time of thought, let me close by considering Mayasu's approach to the relation between absolute time and the problem of induction in terms of Badiou's argument concerning the relation of philosophy to science in his early essay, Mark and Lack. A 
According to Badiou, science, considered on the model of mathematics and logic, and logic, operates as a kind of sieve through which the transcendental subject is filtered. By virtue of the complex stratification of its formalized discourse, science filters subjective self-reflection reflection out of a system of operations which relates only to itself the multiple outside, as Badiou puts it. So the question is, who thinks within such an outside? Or better, what is thinking? What Badiou calls science is possible precisely because the transcendental subject is split. Insofar as science is foreclosed by stratification to the reflexivity of both the signifier and the subject, it has to be something like the non-reflexive thought of a noumenal eye, a non-reflexive thinking in which the determination of what is thought by the forms of intuition is suspended. Stratification filters the transcendental subject down to the noumenal eye, from which it is split by self-reflection. This, I think, is the sense of Baudieu's famous description of science as what he calls the psychosis of no subject. Mm. Congenitally universal, he writes, shared delirium. One has only to maintain oneself within it in order to be no one, anonymously dispersed in hierarchy of orders. Philosophy can touch upon this operative anonymity, can mark it, but it can never envelop the totality of its operations. Philosophy is compelled to encounter science to include its results within its thinking, but philosophy cannot maintain itself within science. Philosophy can name the shared delirium, the psychosis of no subject, but only as the mark of what philosophy lacks, the lack of being science. The mark of this lack, in Maesu's discourse, is absolute time, referring us to an absolute that philosophy can only think under the condition of the encounter. Philosophy can, that is, graft the Humean problem onto Cantorian in totality, that's the encounter. Um, and the contact of the former with the latter can destroy an image of thought. It is precisely, it is philosophy that throws the die. It is science that shatters it. Hmm. Absolute time is the sign of the suture by which philosophy decompletes itself through contact with the foreclosed discourse of science. Absolute time, the sign of a non-concept which has to be thought, is the scar of a wound inflicted upon the corpus of philosophy by the not-all of transfinite mathematics. One final paragraph. Thoughts without content are empty, says Kant. Intuitions without concepts are blind. Maysu's ironic appropriation of the Kantian term intellectual intuition to name the type of speculative rationality operative in his work might be taken to imply that he in some sense affirms this Kantian pronunciation. But his speculative project is precisely to explore the blind emptiness of a thought that sustains itself without the assurance of a transcendental apparatus, yet without thereby ceasing to be rationally productive or specifically determined. It is not the case that, in pursuing a speculative itinerary, Mayasu does not pose the problem of judgment. It's merely that the criteria of judgment are not installed in the subject, rather determined by the exterior constraints of a conjunctural field of positions, which informs reason to its own imperatives through encounters. But he structures his thought so as to submit its problems to the blind obedience of these exterior constraints is one of the ways, an Althusserian way, in which Mansu is a materialist. Yes. Mm. Shall we uh, have some questions and conversation? Please let me come back up.
I'm going to start if no one else is going to. Yeah. Um, actually, it's a, it's a, a question about um, politics. So I guess it's it's basically um, for living, but it could really be about it could be for anyone too. Um, and there's a couple of aspects to it. I'm wondering uh, in your discussion of you know class as a kind of an object. Um, what about the proletariat? Um, can we think of the proletariat in these terms? And the extension of this would be, what about a generic set? If we think about the proletariat you know, in Bedouin terms as something like an object that does not have any characteristics, <laughs> right? Um, do generic sets as such count as objects? Can they be thought of in the terms that you would like to present? And the other, the other um, sort of question that came up in my mind about this um, earlier is, uh, and in terms of Eleanor's talk, I believe, what about life? It's, it, it struck me that these these creeping vines had a kind of a, the, the, a, the pure animation of them, right? Um, Badiou interestingly says at that wonderful final chapter of uh, Logics of World that life is a subjective category, right? But um, is there something like a life object that, for example, biopolitical thinkers might think of as one way of talking about the essential object of philosophy, of uh, political theory or politics itself. So what about life and what about, you know, uh, the proletariat? Yeah, those are two pretty distinct questions. Um, but, you know, with respect to the first, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I think that something like uh, a generic set, as long as, uh, you know, I would differ somewhat from I do here, I would have to have some sort of internal structure to it. Uh, it can uh, it can be an object, and um, so this is one of the things that I'm trying to work through in my own uh, political thinking, is how we can get the emergence or the development of something like um, self-directing objects that are engaged in praxis. And so, in this paper, you know, part of what I'm trying to disentangle is the idea that um, the social sphere is already in and of itself political. You know, one of the arguments here would be that when we talk about class in the sense that I was talking about it, it's not in and of itself a political entity. And so, you know, we have this question that, uh, you know, a number of these thinkers in um, the Althusserian episteme have been obsessed with, mm. right? What is the moment of the political in Baidu and Rancière, Valibar, and uh, so on and so forth? And, uh, you know, following Sartre in that respect, um, I, I would argue that uh, collective objects like classes um, in and of themselves aren't political. It's when we get the emergence of something like groups that we have something like a, a political agency um, that uh, develops and begins to act in the world uh, for certain directed ends. Now, um, what was the... Uh, so I can see the additional point. One of the things that I do very much want to dislodge, though, at least in my own work in our discussions of political theory, is talk of the subject. Um, you know, I, I think perhaps it's just a rhetorical point, but surely at the level of uh, connotations, I think it has long sort of connotations. It leads us to think in terms of individuals, in terms of persons, in terms of ideological hailings. It seems to me that the proper category of the political is the category of the group. Not a, Which you would uh, not want to describe as a collective subject? Well, uh, this, uh, this in part has to do with Sartre. Sartre makes a distinction between collectives and groups, and uh, collectives for him are largely passive entities that we find ourselves enmeshed within, 
whereas groups are arrived in self, uh, self-directing uh, coalitions that are political in character that have some sort of praxis. Um, so, uh, you know, if you wanted to call them collectives, I wouldn't have any objection to that. I kind of prefer the term collective to group, especially, you know, in the context of the identity politics that's dominated a lot of American politics for the last, uh, you know, few decades. Uh, collective might be better than group. Uh, but, you know, with respect to your question about life, um, when you ask, you know, is life an object, are you, are you asking, are there living objects, or is no, there something no, over and above? Yeah. Yeah. Is it is it a hyper object, shall we say? Yeah, I, that's why I meant this is a larger question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would be inclined to say that living objects become possible as a result of a certain hyper object, such as climate. Right? Uh, that uh, you know, I, I made reference in my paper uh, to the environment uh, becoming saturated with oxygen. Right, uh, you know, and that was as a result of uh, what was it, green eukaryotic uh, cells that uh, yeah. were pumping out all that oxygen, yeah. and then they yeah. just kind of killed themselves off, yeah. and now suddenly we got this uh, this new sort of organism. And so there'd be a, you know, we just like with anything else, uh, there'd be relations of dependency where some sorts of objects become possible as a result of the existence or presence. I, I guess my question is really objects. more, you know, and it's really an open question. You know, in politics, is there something like an object that has special stature, mm. like the key, the, the, the you know the, the fundamental object? In a sense, would it be something like class, or I, I would sounds to me like you're suggesting mm. that the proletariat is the only real class, if you will. Know. No, no, no. Uh, well, okay, maybe I, guess I mean the you. Nazis would be, a, you know, a, a, a group object. So they're doing politics uh, then. Uh, really horrific politics, uh, but, but I was, you know, they're self-directing agencies within the social sphere, so I think, uh, yeah. Right. Should I yeah, please. a question then about, about the theory of um, classes as objects? Just how you would position it um, in relation to Marx, in relation mm -hmm. to Marx and theory of class, because it's, it seems like a, um, a nice problem to think through for the, mm. for the position of object-oriented philosophy, because in Marx, class obviously is like a constitutively relational category. Mm -hmm. You can't think proletariat. You can't think labor except in relation to capital. You can't think um, the proletariat except in relation to the bourgeoisie. There's no, there's literally no such thing as like discrete from that relation. And so capital you know, is the contradiction between capital and labor, um, or at least that's the sort of one of the internal dynamics of capital. So I just wonder how you could. How do you sort of think class in relation to Marx, like if you're going to think it as a non-relational mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, we, we can make the case that there are hyper-objects that are internally differentiated and structured. But, um, and, and so, I, in, in certain respects, I think this way of um, posing the question that it's, uh, you, know, you know, an intrinsically related uh, relational type category is to privilege mid-scale individuals, human bodies, persons, or something like that, um, and then point out that they can only be a member of the class so long as there are relationships that refer beyond them. But if there's a higher scale entity that has an internal relational structure, you can still have that uh, higher scale entity be non-related at that higher level of scale. You see what I'm suggesting there. And so, I mean, in a lot of ways, if you think about Kant's second antinomy, 
you know, with, with these toxic particle relationships and muriological relationships. You know, uh, what is uh, the thesis of uh, consecutive antinomy? It's uh, that uh, being is composed uh, of simple, irreducible substances, and the antithesis is everything is composite, and kind of resolves this antithesis by saying both are false. And that's somewhat what I'm rigorously trying to do, is to simultaneously thank the falseness of both these positions at once, that each object at a higher level of scale is simultaneously a multiplicity and right. an internally differentiated structure of its own. And so, I, just, um, I guess I just wonder if it's even possible to speak about something like class like outside of the rigorously Marxian framework. For me, it's like, if you well, want I, to speak I see about myself as articulating right, the frameworks oh, right. within an ontological framework, so I don't see myself as being opposed right. That's what I'm, to yeah. Marx here. Because um, to be, to be um, the proletariat is you know, that class which sells its labor for wage, right? And so it's a, that's a relational constitution of it. But I don't know, it's just like, it's an interesting problem to talk about. Um, yeah, this is for Nathan. Um, uh, maybe touching on the live question, but really more of a poetry question. Um, and, and going to the Mallarmé example uh, of the throw of the dice and, and the relationship to Liz and that view, because I think um, it's interesting that, especially that you also to Liz, um, you know, that, that you can so in different ways embedded to Mallarmé, he does actually. Uh, draw out in some of his more extended analysis of Lamine's um, several poems, or three. Uh, th this play, and I would characterize it, um, you know, for example, in this poem about a shipwreck, and there's this siren who disappears into the sea, and, mm. and, and basically all that's left is this human, this, this um, um, oh. foam, thank you, mm. oh, sorry, this foam uh, uh, on, on the, you know, uh, on the surface, and, and so for, for Gardu, and this is this is Malamé is showing the, the play of the void, but also uh, you know the appearance of something or its disappearance, uh, and, but but then also the, the space of the void, and you know the word the name of the void, and Malamé pops up in these poems, um, and that seems to be a distinctive dimension of, of Gardu's reading Malamé, and then the list too, I think, following really more from. Parable show in his evocation of um, Ijito and the midnight uh, and all this in, in Malame. Um, it, it's quite interesting in the way this is used to um, think about these two spaces, uh, whether it's uh, midnight and noon, or say death, especially, and the other death. You know, this, this, the death that the subject dies and then the death that's beyond the space of the subject. And, and so, all because of it, I, I feel like in both I do and Deleuze, and this explicitly in the way they read Malamé, there's a certain interesting polarity and a gesture to a space of the, say, the void, or, and this is where, as you know, I kind of don't follow the vitalist reading of Deleuze, but that's another argument that we've probably already had. Um, but, uh, you know, I think even in Deleuze, an interesting evocation of death, say, um, and I guess I'm wondering how that dimension of their work filtered through Malamé would fit into the category of the absolute, that is, that he's void, um, you know, Deleuze's, I would say, non-vitalist side, if you will. Yeah, I mean, to start with Deleuze, like, I don't think that, um, the account that I've given of Deleuze 
I mean, he uses the term life, right? But it's not, um, I don't think it really affects the, um, the argument that I lay out here, whether we think of him as a vitalist or not. So I, I, for me, the fundamental point is just that um, if there are these two tables, midnight and midday, et cetera, um, for Deleuze, the way that um, their sort of disjunctive synthesis is thought is through the figure of the whole, the one all, the single throw. I mean, he's quite explicit on this, I think, in Difference and Repetition many times, and also in the Nietzsche book, that there's a one throw um, which affirms the whole of chance and gathers all the multiplicity of throws into the affirmative gesture of that throwing. And that is my reading, anyway, of how Deleuze positions the problem of the dice throw in, um, in the Nietzsche book and in Difference and Repetition. But in, um, and he uses different terms, you know, the one throw, the whole of chance, he uses the term life at times, uh, perhaps not specifically in relation to the dice throw, um, but obviously as a figure for the whole. Um, and, you know, I think that Bob Hughes' uh, criticism of him in the, in the Deleuze book, which on points, you know, I'm not necessarily sympathetic to, but I think his reading of the dice throw in Deleuze, I basically agree with in that, in that text. And that's where he lays out explicitly, um, along with that meditation and being an event that you're thinking of, um, on Mallarmé, uh, a theory of the dice throw of his own. And there it's like, yeah, the void, um, of course, is crucial uh, ontologically for Baudieu, but what it does is it sustains you know, the possibility of there being like a, a purely sort of aleatory instance, right? Um, which can mm. emerge as sort of a chance, as a singularity. Um, which is not contained in the situation already, right? That's why you need the void of the situation um, as the site of like a singular instance of our chance. So it's that um, relation between uh, singularity in, in Baudieu, which then has to be affirmed by a subject, right, retroactively. Um, and in Deleuze, uh, there has to be a sort of affirmation um, of the whole of chance in the univocal throw. And in, it's a process of selection, you know, in Deleuze's uh, reading um, The Eternal Return in Nietzsche. Uh, the Eternal Return is selective and affirmative. And in Mayasu, there's just nothing. What's interesting, I think, about the figure of the throw, why it has to be like destroyed, the dice has to explode, is there's no selection. There's no affirmation. There's no subject and there's no whole. Right? And it's the, the die, you know, the two sort of possibilities of treating it, Deleuze and uh, saving chance and Deleuze and you like blows up, right? Because there can't be a selection or an affirmation. And that's the only way to save it from, you know, dissolving <clears throat> back into probability, I think. Time for one quick question. Daniel, this one. I'm really uh, intrigued and interested in this development, you know, now we have something like called hype. A very small question would be simply whether logical um, ontology has this or produce some other new kinds of intersectional objects, besides ontologies, or other classical objects, and what would be some of the properties? Um, and the other thing about specifically about hyperobjects, such as class, uh, you could mention they are hyperextended in time space, and it's one of the properties. And I'm trying to build that up to the general uh, framework of your philosophy in which um, we have, as you mentioned, the objects in the genetic virtual structure, so as we can end with social manifestations, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether hyper objects, which are massively extended, 
is, is there any sense in which we can speak of a singular uh, local manifestation of a hyper object at a point in time? Mm -hmm. Something like climate change. Does it have one local manifestation? Because you can imagine from one part of the world, rain and other parts, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I strongly suspect um, that among the hyper objects, uh, you know, we have um, you know, Morton's climate. We have um, we have uh, things like class. We have economy. Um, are, are just a few hyper objects that I strongly suspect uh, exist. Uh, you know, other hyper objects like perhaps the internet is a hyper object at this time and uh, you know so local manifestations at the turn uh, you know with respect to uh, say economy we're living in it right now right uh, you know with the uh, the economic collapse or the economic downturn would be a local manifestation of this broadly uh, extended object in, uh, in time and space and so you know one of the things I think that's really interesting about Morton's concept of hyper objects is uh, you know now we can think of all sorts of um, conflictual and antagonistic relations among these different hyper-objects. Uh, you know, the interaction between uh, economy and, uh, and climate or, you know, class and economy and uh, so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, in terms of class, this gives rise to a different concept of class struggle. Class struggle wouldn't simply be class struggle between uh, the bourgeois and the proletariat, but again, smaller scale objects such as yourself against class itself as an object that's withdrawn from you and so on and so forth. And uh, you know, so it, it seems to really complicate the picture, I think, of how we think about these sorts of things. So if I'm just being very clear on that, <coughs> so a hyper object can't have more than a single working decision. Um, uh, oh yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's my, my distinction between virtual proper being with objects and local manifestations. Um, I, you know, the, the, the way in which, um, say, the, uh, the pen is interacting with the podium is productive of one local manifestation that is very, very different than the way in which, uh, uh, you know, whoever's using the pen is interacting with uh, the particular pen in that case. And so you can simultaneously have different local manifestations taking place or the actualization of different sensuous qualities to use Graham's speech in this situation, which know nothing about each other, right? You know, a very Bobbitzian thesis that every monad is a point of view on the entire universe. And, uh, you know, perhaps there are topological harmonies or, you know, mutations that can, uh, you know, parallel them with one another if the world is composable or something like that. But uh, we wouldn't know anything about it. I think we're going to have to stop now. Thank you both very much. Yeah. We'll have a five minute break and start up again at a quarter to four. You knew that Nias has got a book on coming out soon. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's his next one. It's fin they're finishing up already, but I didn't know. Yeah, nice to. Oh, that's fantastic. It's going to be a series, whichever publisher that is. Very great. How long is it, Dan? Brief work. It's a whole work on that. Fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Alaska. Thanks. Thank you.
Stuff Nathan. Thanks. Really beautiful guy. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm 
Yeah, yeah. Um, is Tim in the room? Yeah, he's back there. Ready? I want to get Tim's. I need to get Tim Morton's remote, okay. and then I'll be ready. Yeah. Pretty much ready. It's been a nice little event. Yeah, good. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Are you in town for a while after the Claremont? I'm here until the 7th. In Los Angeles? Yeah. Oh, terrific. What else are you going to be doing? I don't know yet. Claremont. Just go and hang around? Exactly. See what there is to see. Fantastic. Have you ever seen any suggestions? Yeah, yes. Yeah. What kinds of things do you want to do? Just get some taste of being much more red. Is there any outside universities? Oh, how close do you believe? I think there is, but it's very hard to find. Yeah, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. There was a time when it was more public. There was actually a public. There was a time when the LA County Museum of Art had a really interesting series of terrifically intellectual presentations. Occasionally at the public library, I mean, uh, Slavoj gave a talk there a couple years ago. Probably had a new series too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the uh, rare of that he's not here. Yeah. yeah, we go way, way, way back. Yeah, uh, just for, you know, a long, long time. We have co-wrote a book together with uh, our friend Eric Sandler. Yeah. So, uh, we're, um, we just weird. Yeah. Well, actually, we had a nice, uh, interesting debate with Thank you and Slaughterman last spring. Yeah. That was uh, intense. It was three hours. It was really debate. Although, um, you know, what, what really happened was, I mean, Slavo just is not able to, to do it anymore, you know, and he, uh, he basically says, you know, I agree with the land, you know, and he tries to make such a kind of invention. It's almost desperate, you know, and to make some kind of original tradition. Um, and then all I do is say, I So, yeah, it was a debate, you know, at least one that. Uh, but they don't really have strongly distinct positions, you know, and well, I mean, I think you know, it's a little bit of a show with Slav when he does the, oh, you're the master, I know, right? I will not criticize you. But um, I'm not sure I would do it yet that way. We have read here a lot, and uh, he's affected by himself. Yes. That doesn't happen. You know, he's you know the stature is still uh, significant enough that people you know acknowledge him. Uh, but afterwards, it's it's great. You know, we had two lines of students, and they all want either their body or their laptop signed. Their body or their laptops. That's the thing. You know, the two lines. So they still had some fun. I'm a rock star kind of quality. Right. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm really thrilled that you're going to be presenting some of uh, Mayor Sue's uh, you know, great unread books. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, you know, it sounds unbelievably interesting. And he's not going to pleasure himself on when he's such a perfectionist. Yeah, that's what I hear. Uh, and you must be one of the only people in the world who's really seen this thing. Unless people are going to the microfilm vaults at the ENS. It's available. You can do it. As a dissertation. There's a guy named uh, Walker who's done that as a book. Uh, French concepts of God, and we're going to be out. I'm just going to do it, but yeah, 
Once you get the whole of the jazz and edition, quite nice. I'm just persuading. I didn't want to do it. It's interesting. It's interesting. We've tried twice to invite his mom here, and he's very gracious. And one time he said yes, and then he backed out. And he just doesn't want to travel. Yeah. 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 It's a shame. It's great that you're not having to do from Cairo. You and your whole here. You travel as much as possible. It's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you could have me and Nasu come and work us out. If he's willing to do it, we'll do it. You know, to ask him. Tell him, tell him, you know. But Aladdin, you know, personally said, you know, please try to come. They actually interviewed with him because at first of all, he said, oh, well, you know, they won't let him leave because of the strange death. Right. And, I, and so Aladdin tried to intervene. You know, so we'll see. Okay, let's get it going. Okay. You're ready? Okay. You ready? I'm ready. All right. We are, we are beginning. Please take your seats. Sit down. You. Hey, sit down. <laughs> okay, we're reassembling the assemblage here. Um, I'm Julia Lupton from UC Irvine. I'm really happy to be here today uh, to introduce our final speakers. On uh, her birthday. Oh, oh, oh wow. Yeah. Uh, that best birthday present ever my husband could give me was a conference on objects. So <laughs> like in seventh heaven here. You could say that it was a gift of everything. It was a gift of everything. I have a lot to everything. Yeah, so I'm going to introduce the two speakers in one speech and then let you guys speak because I kind of wrote it that way. Um, so uh, Ram Harmon and Ian Ghost are our final speakers. And as uh, we heard already this morning, I think many people have been here for the whole fabulous day. Um, Ram Harmon is Associate Provost of Research Administration and Associate Professor of Philosophy at the American University in Cairo. And if you were here this morning, or better yet, if you're into this stuff, you'll already know that Graham is the author of a stunning series of books reorienting the Heideggerian and also Husserlian traditions around the agencies of the object. Uh, he documents the process that got him where he is today in his most recent essay collection, which is you know kind of half brilliant essays and half kind of layeristic glimpse into your formation. <laughs> It's called uh, Towards Speculative Realism, Essays and Lectures, and it begins with essays written at the end of his graduate career at DePaul University, uh, where Graham was studying philosophy while also, get this, working as a sports writer. Mm -hmm. You can kind of see it. His major books include Guerrilla Metaphysics, um, Tool Being, and also Prince of Networks on Bruno Latour. And as we heard already, he's got amazing stuff coming out, including a book on Lovecraft, which I can't wait to read, appropriately entitled Weird Realism, and a collaboration with Bruno Latour um, entitled The Prince and the Wolf. So Latour is the prince, and mm. Graham is the wolf, I assume. Uh, I'm also looking forward to his treatise on objects, 
uh, Graham raises his philosophical prose of delirious object collections uh, that demonstrate poetically the force of his arguments. And this is, of course, somewhat in the style of Latour. And uh, Ian the Ghost has created a fabulous macro, which you can find on his website, <laughs> called the Latour Litanizer, which allows you to build your own Harmonesque inventory of weird things, or you could say your own slinky malinky, <laughs> uh, using Wikipedia's random page API to generate lists. So if you get tired during the final segment and you've got your cell phone, you can check this out. Uh, this brings me to Ian Bogost. I've known Ian for many years since he was a graduate student here at UCLA. And although Ken constitutes my first and most primal contact with Ian, um, Ian and I have had an independent relationship based on our mutual interests in design and design writing, as well as our collaborations with Liz Losh, who is here in the room. Uh, Ian, as you probably know, is a scholar, but he's also a game designer an avid blogger, a great teacher, and the only academic I know of who has come off well on the Colbert Report. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his major academic books include Persuasive Games, uh, The Expressive Power of Video Games, and Unit Operations, an Approach to Video Game Criticism. Uh, he edits Platform Studies, a book series published by MIT Press. Um, he teaches at Georgia Tech. Uh, he is a founding partner of Persuasive Games, which is a video game studio, and he is a board member at Open Texture, an educational publisher. And I want to say that today's event was Ian's inspiration, who worked very closely yeah. with Ken, to bring this together. I want to thank both Ken and Ian at this moment. Are you first, Ben, or are you first? Well, I'm the first. I think that's what it says on our schedule. Okay, so Ian's first. Oh, yeah, that's what it says. Okay, so let's hear from Ian. Thanks. Thanks very much. It's great to be back at UCLA. Is it dark? Should we open this? Yeah. Well, if someone in the back wants to wants to put the lights back up, then maybe it'll prevent us from Are there any lights lulling ourselves to, to sleep. Although I'm, I'm going to try very hard to keep you awake. The other way. The little might be it. Oh, that feels you. that feels a bit better, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. The title of this talk uh, is playfully object-oriented ontogeny. In 1954, Lieutenant Colonel John Paul Stapp strapped into a rocket sled named Sonic Wind and launched himself down a 2,000-foot railroad track improvised into the empty dust of Holloman Air Force Base. He reached a ground speed of 632 miles per hour before meeting a trough of hydraulic brakes, which decelerated the sled to a halt in 1.4 seconds. In so doing, Stapp withstood over 40 times the force of gravity, the highest known measure voluntarily experienced by a human. That same summer, an 18-year-old man drove home alone through the dark, quiet streets of Milwaukee, past the scrap recyclers and metal shops of the neighborhood of North Division. It was very late at night, late enough to better be called early in the morning, and the young man was returning from a date. Because he was young, and because he was tired, and because no radio broadcast could provide a jolt of the comet's rock-around-the-clock at that hour, he fell asleep at the wheel. 
a deceleration less well-planned than sonic winds inadvertently delivered his automobile to the neighborhood's scrapyards. Colonel Stapp's work on the effects of deceleration had a profound influence on both military and civilian machinery. In addition to inspiring standards for fighter jets, his work on the common shoulder strap and lap belt was both theoretical and applied. He pioneered the first use of crash test dummies and advocated heavily for automobile seat belts. But they wouldn't become a required feature of all automobiles sold in the United States until 1968. The young Milwaukee man would recover from most of the injuries he'd sustained after his unharnessed frame was thrown through the windshield and onto the pavement. But when he finally woke up a month later, one trauma would remain forever. Ironically, it wasn't the crash itself that would permanently damage his vision, but the brain surgery that probably contributed to saving the rest of him. It's hard to know precisely what happened, perhaps a mistake, a nick of the scalpel against the optic chiasma, perhaps just an unknown consequence of a then experimental procedure. The results would be a lifetime of legal blindness uncorrectable with optical prosthetics due to its source, withdrawn deep into the cranium, invisible. That young man was my father, and I have breathed the hot exhaust of his disability my entire life, like secondhand smoke. There were always some things he'd admit he couldn't do, like drive a car, but his dogged independence and overall bullheadishness, none of which I inherited, actually, <laughs> contributed to his stalwart refusal to refuse to have a go at things. It's a virtue as much as a vice, and probably the same character that would insist that a tie was brown instead of green, or that a public toilet had been marked men instead of women, or that he didn't know I was there when he ran into me. Probably those same characteristics are also what made him persist in college earning bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees in psychology between 1959 and 1968, a time long before the Rehabilitation Act and Americans with Disabilities Act inspired universities to establish offices of disability services to assist such students. In a charming paradox, he practiced as a clinical vocational rehabilitation psychologist for more than 25 years, most of that time in his own private practice. Because nothing was facile, no device sufficiently ready to hand to qualify as equipment, everything was topped with a frothy head of mystery. When traversing a neighborhood block or parking lot, constant vigilance for curbs, stoops, stumps, and other imperfections which my mother or I might call out and which my father would selectively ignore with ironic assurances. Yes, mm. I see it. I see it. As if it were a game rather than a tool, the playful counting of steps and stairs, both aloud and with the impressively overstated footfalls that characterized his cadence, and which also served to combat the constant influx of rope, asphalts, cements, twigs, and other detritus. A ubiquitous pocket magnifier to investigate details of possible interest, but unlike the large lens of a Sherlock Holmes, my father's investigations yielded more commonplace conclusions the sale price of Coca-Cola six-packs, or the current position on an FM dial lost in static, or the location of a rogue Excedrin tablet on a white countertop. <laughs> when at a restaurant, my mother reading a litany of menu items aloud, too loud, including every detail of its preparation, grilled sea bass, roasted potatoes, forest mushrooms, spinach, orange beurre blanc, Grilled salmon, whole grain mustard cream sauce, fried polenta, green beans, sauteed arugula, roasted peppers. 
Heritage Ranch grilled beef filet, Campozola cheese, mushroom risotto, asparagus, Nebbiola wine sauce. Such matters are further complicated by both of my parents' maddening idiosyncrasies, which they left suspended like an aioli between private language and public perturbation. In one memorable example, a new waiter at a Mexican restaurant they frequented responded so negatively to my father's requests for special handling of the complimentary tostada chips that a fistfight almost ensued. And perhaps you'll understand why his spirited request, kill them, kill them dead, might not have effectively communicated his desire for fresh, hot chips. <laughs> as a kid, this was a nuisance. Even as an adult, it's a nuisance. The combination of eccentricity and purblindness wrapped in a shroud of habituation crafted a unique being in my parents, one that works according to its own logic, the rationale of its operation hidden within its molten core. As their son, I was particularly accustomed to interpreting the vectors of lava flows that seeped therefrom, often offering vicarious direction for the worldly souls without who wished to step over them. I always considered this withdrawal a liability, a defect, a chronic isolation, a refusal or an inability to normalize behavior to the standards of ordinary society, impairment or none. But in that irritation, something was hidden in plain sight. My daily life as a child amplified things like a giant tangibility transformer. Ordinary stuffs enjoyed substantial, perhaps primary focus. Without knowing it, I had grown up assimilated with mundane objects. I was uncompromised by the translations of human use or even of human sense-making. On the B side of a lengthy ballad of social perplexity played a panegyric to the surprising, understated infinity of being. Tree roots that evolve mountains out of concrete. The unpainted edges of uneven stairs. The brown buttons on hotel ice machines which blend into the brown bezel that contains them. The edge of the water-spotted flatware that precariously tips the coffee cup. The dots of half-toned ink that smear to fashion the pictures and letter forms on newsprint the polyp that distinguishes a tangelo from a navel orange, the paralyzing black of a darker-than-usual darkness. I realize now that these worldly features were not mere distractions, absconding with the normalcy of social convention, devouring me into an abyss of civic weirdness. They were that, to be sure. <laughs> but they were also a cultivation of ontological multiplicity, a foreshadowing of the unshrouding of the great outdoors. Eventually, I became unable to distinguish concern for my father's perilous moment-to-moment -moment welfare from fascination with the nectarine, the spoon, or the sidewalk. I was reared feral among the objects. When we talk about being brought up, we usually refer to culture in a way of relating to other living beings, human beings, of course, but also animals and perhaps even the natural environment. This process involves ethical imperatives, directives about what to believe, about and how to act upon the world. We give comparatively little thought to our aesthetic rearing, the matter of how we orient toward things and how <coughs> things orient toward one another rather than what we do to them. A common scene in my childhood home, my father sitting on the floor perched mere inches before our 1970s era wood-trimmed console television, 
It's a viewing distance at which the overall picture decomposes into red, green, and blue beams broken down into the pattern of the aperture grill through which they are focused. At that distance, the electric static from its picture tube becomes palpable, a Tesla coil lapping current at your nose like a puppy. The sensual ether of the television. For me, it's become as much an object of concern as the characters and scenes represented upon it, or the creators who fashion them from film or from software, or the viewers and players who watch and manipulate them. A cathode ray tube fires patterns of electrons at a phosphorescent screen, which glows to create a visible picture. This screen image is not drawn all at once, but in individual scan lines created as the electron gun passes from side to side across the screen. After each line, the beam turns off and the gun resets its position at the start of the next. For years, we have connected our computers to our televisions from Apple IIs to Xbox 360s. Most of these computer systems offer a frame buffer, a space in memory to store graphics information for an entire screen such that it can be painted like a photograph. In a frame buffered graphics system, the computer's video hardware automates the process of translating the information in memory for display on the screen. But in an unusual move driven by the numerous design factors mm -hmm. and constraints that uh, uh, orchestrated its architecting, the bare-bones graphics chip of the 1977 Atari video computer system, which is called the Television Interface Adapter, or TIA, does not buffer frames. Instead, a running Atari VCS program interfaces between processor and electron gun during every moment of every line of the television display. For the beginning Atari programmer, it's relatively easy to work scan line by scan line, setting up the next line's worth of sprite and background data and colors in the 22 processor cycles it takes for the electron gun to reset its position from one edge of the picture tube to the other before turning on again. But the machine's limited silicon affords the programmer but five movable objects, only two of which are high resolution, and enough memory to change only half of the low resolution play field. This was done to save memory and therefore money in the design of the system. The second half of the 40-bit playfield is automatically copied from the first or mirrored if a particular bit is set on one of the TIA's registers. Eventually, the adept creator will need to change something part way through a scan line. The only way to do this is to count processor cycles. See, the, the electron beam continues scanning whether the program does anything or not. In order to overcome the per-line graphical limitations of the TIA, the programmer simply needs to wait for the beam to complete the first part of the line and then change the values in the appropriate TIA registers to alter the picture accordingly for the rest of the line. To do this, the programmer must count the number of processor cycles that a set of instructions will take to execute and match that time up with the amount of horizontal space on the scan line that will have been traced by the electron beam in the meantime. This process of keeping just enough ahead of the electron gun to make changes to the picture was sometimes called racing the beam, a phrase Nick Moffat and I borrowed from the title of our book about the Atari. Mistiming by even a single cycle can put the entire display out of whack. Processor cycle, radio frequency, horizontal blank, electron gun, microchip. To see the richness of the object world, sometimes we must make ourselves blind to the human world. And about time, Scholars in the humanities and social sciences like to talk about computers by waving their hands and invoking binary code as a sufficiently vague, vague and obfuscationist explanation for some subsequent indictment of a favorite 
hegemonic ideology, most likely something like the encoding of neoliberalism within late capitalism. Here's what I found without even Googling very hard. The very binary code used to make digital spaces underwrites a kind of commitment to either-or propositions and makes it hard to find the in-between spaces. One of the earliest insights about computer technology was that far from moving away from a linguistic structure of computer communications, both simplified, zeros and ones, and complicated our reliance upon language. To equate a computer's nature with the basics of electrical charges is to embrace the same sort of scientific naturalism that cultural theorists usually abhor, positions which hold that the true nature of things amounts to their smallest bits, quarks, neurons, DNA, and so forth. And on the flip side, social relativists claim instead that human behavior and society structure the creation of material things, and therefore the latter always exhibit the former's logic, like palimpsests or like ghosts. Hmm. Thus, the critics' insistence that computer technology primarily amplifies human linguistic or symbolic life. But both of these positions are wrong. Indeed, a principle of object-oriented ontology holds that things exist equally irrespective of their scale, irrespective of their relations. Objects are not just their most basic parts, nor are they just expressions of human agents, or indeed of any agent whatsoever that creates or uses them. And even if one wanted to take an eliminativist position, binary code wasn't ever a satisfactory choice. Voltage bands or transistors or logic gates are other candidates, but then again, those facilitate the creation of integrated circuits, each of which have unique designs and offer different functions. Likewise, the particular design logic of ICs can be said to implement another candidate, abstract logical design. That might take the form of the universal Turing machine or the particular implementation of that idea known as the von Neumann architecture, which underlies most stored program digital computers. And that's just the logical perspective. Materially, ICs are fashioned from metal tracks etched into monocrystal silicon wafers through photolithography, packaged in ceramic or plastic housings with exposed electrical connection pins, and, and so on and so on. When Nick and I set out to explain the Atari VCS, we did so from such a perspective, at least in part, trying to characterize how the unique design of that machine influenced the creative methods deployed by its programmers. And we explained how the results of these hardware negotiations influenced conventions and genres of future video games in unobvious ways. For example, Warren Robinett's adaptation of the PDP-10 text adventure Colossal Cave, or the Sprite and Playfield VCS, effectively invented the graphical adventure genre with its particular method of traversing large spaces by moving through them a single screen at a time, and then moving a cursor off the edge of the picture to reach the next contiguous segment of space. And it was a necessary intervention in media studies, I think. As Nick and I wrote in the series forward to our platform study series, we believe it is time for those of us in the humanities to seriously consider the lowest level of computing systems and to understand how these systems relate to culture and creativity. But the more I find myself working with the Atari as a programmer, a teacher, and a critic, the more I realize that this isn't the whole story. It's worthwhile and appropriate to explore computing systems' relationships to culture and creativity, of course. But such a picture, uh, but such a perspective paints only part of the picture. The lowest level of computing systems also relate to many other things, including televisions, styrofoam packing materials, alternating current electrical signals, and even other components of low-level computing systems. Platform studies can expand and deepen our understanding of how humans relate to computer systems, but it still leaves the question of intercomputational being for the engineer rather than the metaphysician. 
And the engineer's interest primarily involves designing, improving, manipulating, or otherwise putting computation to use for human ends. The metaphysician's interests are broader. For example, what is it like to be the 6502 microprocessor or the television interface adapter? It was this question that finally woke me from my correlationist slumber <laughs> with a static nip at the nose from the living room television. It wasn't so much that I've been doing anything wrong by posing questions about human creativity. Rather, it's that there are so many other questions worth posing. In his famous 1974 essay, philosopher of mind Thomas Nagel attempts to answer the question, what is it like to be a bat? For Nagel, consciousness has a subjective character that cannot be reduced to its physical components. Even if the experience of the microprocessor can be understood as electrical or logical or computational, such an explanation does not describe the experience of the device, what it's like to be that organism or that thing. Object-oriented ontology borrows the name withdrawal for this elusiveness, a feature of everything. Nagel's article is really about the mind-body problem, but it offers insight for a speculative approach to understanding objects' experiences, a practice I call alien phenomenology. The character of the experience of something is not identical to the characterization of that experience by something else. Nagel's goal is an objective phenomenology, one not dependent on empathy or the imagination, to use his words. But I want to sail a different tack. Mm. Unlike objective phenomenology, alien phenomenology embraces speculation as the only path to insight, acknowledging that such speculation will always caricature its object. Quite literally speaking, the only way to perform alien phenomenology is by analogy, whether that analogy comes through a critical process for characterizing object perceptions, an approach I call metaphorism, or through the process of constructing artifacts that themselves character an object's experience, an approach I call carpentry. Rather than objective instrument, what we need is a mechanism that welcomes distortion. Here's an artifact I made that performs metaphorism through carpentry on the Atari Tia. It tries to, to offer a view of the world of the Tia through the lens of the standard display. Since the TIA is synchronized to the electron gun of the television picture, instead of storing the entire screen at once, it determines which of its objects sit atop the current position of the display and modulates its output signal accordingly. Yes. Uh, this program characterizes the experience of the television interface adapter, metaphorizing it for human grasp. When run, it interprets screens of a video game, in this case combat, rendering only the modulated color that TIA calculates and sends to the RF adapter at a particular moment. So this is the, the, the version of this that you'll see from the TIA's perspective, so to speak. Instead of seeing an entire television picture worth of image, the human viewer sees only the single hue currently processed by the microprocessor. Since the electron gun burns an entire picture into the phosphor of the television 60 times a second, the program is slowed down considerably. This rendering not only spares its human viewer seizure, but also highlights the rate of chromatic experience native to the microchip, which alters its signals in time with the electron beam rather than through uh, rather than the human eye, stopping regularly to await its position to reset to the next scan line. It also underscores part of the chip's experience that would never be graspable through a human interface with the Atari. And that's the TIA that the TIA and the electron beam have to switch off during the television's horizontal and vertical. When experienced through a decelerated metaphorical lens, strange moments of black silence interrupt the characteristically bright colors of an Atari game. 
Time moves forward in syncopated bursts of inbound bits and bursts of signal, then of color from joystick to motherboard to mm -hmm. television. The machine has no concept of a screen image. It perceives only a miasma of data, color, and darkness. Colonel Stack was 82 years old and suffering from the long-term effects of the many injuries he had sustained to become the fastest man alive when I met him in 1992 at the International Space Hall of Fame in Alamogordo. The complex sits at the base of the Sacramento Mountains, just a few miles from the stretch of empty desert where Stapp's rocket sleds had traversed the length of a football field in half a second. The museum's Gemini-inspired gold-mirrored windows turned away the desert sun that day, dumping luster onto the courtyard like a tipping minecart. There, sonic wind is fastened tragically to the cement yard, immovable, put out to pasture. As with my father, Stapp's fractured bones have long since healed, but the results of detached retinas and permanently broken blood vessels <laughs> had significantly reduced the clarity of his vision. But in exchange, he tousled speed and wind and Icarus with roadrunner's wings. The colonel had been aware of the risks before his final run on Sonic Wind, and he'd practiced dressing and undressing with the lights out, so if I was blinded, I wouldn't be helpless. But sight overheats and reverses into a different kind of blindness. True blindness ruptures relations <laughs> rather than embracing them. And we can all benefit by being reared by the blind. Helplessness resists the relation between our real and sensual sides, developing the muscle that loops the real self to itself. Now, object-oriented ontology is a first principles philosophy, but we can also arrive at it from the bottom up by grasping at forces in the dark. We can embrace our own withdrawal by becoming just another thing among the tangelos and the ice machines and the screen phosphor. Thank you. Should we go ahead and talk? Yeah. 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 <clears throat> uh, yeah. I guess so. Well, we've heard some talk about the tour of at Nice. This is Ian's term for these long lists of objects that have become a kind of a stylistic trait of all object-oriented works. The tour does them very well. He's not the first. Uh, Sian, the guy was reminding me a short while ago, Walt Whitman is very good at these as well. Um, <laughs> One of the things the toilet needs suggest is a flat ontology. I want to talk a little bit about that term. Um, Anwar Delanda uses the term flat ontology in the philosophy of society to mean that all object, all entities, all assemblages, as he calls them, are to be treated in the same terms. They're all on the same footing. Uh, none are more real than the others. They almost be treated in the same way. Interestingly enough, he seems to draw this term from Roy Baskar. Um, and Baskar means the term negatively. Unlike Delanda. Delanda often does this. He borrows terms and then changes the sense of them somewhat. He does that with redundant causation as well. Uh, Baskar's sense of flat ontology is negative because for him that means all entities are flattened out into their accessibility to humans. And he doesn't, Delanda obviously doesn't want that. He, he believes in something like a virtual, he believes in something real that's deeper than our perception of it. Uh, I actually like both senses, and I'm going to, to speak positively of both of those senses in this term here in this talk, which I'll try to make briefer than. This stack of milk curd suggests. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't looking at the schedule when I wrote these up. Um, 
It is often said falsely that I believe that all objects are equally real. Uh, I've never said that. That is the early Latour. That is not me. It is the early Latour who believes that Popeye, Batman, Adams, uh, fill in your own Latour with me. All of those things are equally real. And by the early Latour, I mean the Latour of the Reductions, which is that nice little appendix to the pasteurization of France, which is a wonderful case study of Pasteur. And when I started writing Prince of Networks, uh, Latour told me that if you're going to write about my philosophy, you have to focus on your reductions. This is the key to all this philosophy. It was never reviewed even once independently. Mm. Um, now, for Latour in that book, all objects are equally, all, all, he doesn't use objects, he uses actors. All actors are equally real, not all are equally strong. And what makes something real for Latour is if it affects something else. The thing is real insofar as it does not exist in a vacuum, it affects other things. But obviously not all things are equally strong. And strength is determined by your number of alliances, your scope of alliances. So uh, you know, fictional entities uh, do have a certain reality, but it's a fairly weak reality because not many allies testify to that reality. Um, so that's a flat ontology. It's a very good example of one that's towards early philosophy. He has modified this recently in his, his late system, which is not yet published, in which he has 14 modes of existence each of them somewhat different from the others. We should see this out in a couple of years because he's going to be giving the Gifford Lectures at Edinburgh in the fall of 2012. We'll join the ranks of Alfred North Whitehead, William James, and Barrett Son in doing so. Now, in fact, in my uh, philosophy, there are two kinds of objects. There are the real and the sensual, as I explained this morning. So it's not really a flat ontology. It's a two-layered ontology. Uh, it is flat in the sense that it's not a taxonomy. I'm not saying that certain things are real and certain things are sensual. Things have two sides, generally. So it's a... It's a, an ontology in which every layer of the cosmos has two sides. It's not one that classifies two types of entities in contradistinction from each other. Uh, I think I'll skip the part where I explain real objects and real qualities, sensual objects, sensual qualities, because I did that this morning. We're trying to save time here. The point uh, for this talk is that there is a difference for object-oriented ontology, at least for my ver uh, variants, between the real and the sensual. And so therefore, you have to find some way to distinguish between them. You can't say that all things are equally real. Um, a lot of this stuff is stuff I covered this morning. I'm trying to get to the method parts. No, it's not. It's different. Okay. How do you distinguish between real and unreal objects? Real and unreal assemblages? There's a nice list of these in Delanda's book, New Philosophy of Society. It's my favorite part of his book, actually. It's chapter two. He gives a list of criteria. Uh, for what makes a real assemblage as opposed to something that's not real. And this is not a question the tour would ever ask, notice. For the tour, this is not a, you're not going to try to epistemologically distinguish between the real and the unreal. And Delanda's list is as follows. First, a real assemblage should have emergent qualities. It should have qualities that its components don't have. For example, H2O um, has qualities that neither hydrogen nor oxygen have. Redundant causation, which is a term he uses slightly differently from how it's used in analytic philosophy, that simply means that the pieces of a thing can, to some extent, be interchanged and replaced without affecting the thing itself. You can take atoms out of your body and replace them with, with comparable atoms, or even just remove the atoms, and you're still going to be the same person. It happens every seven years on average for us. Anyway, none of the atoms in your body now were there in 2002. Um, the third one is that they're able to affect things at their own scale. This is a kind of Victorian definition. A real assemblage is something that can affect other things. So if UCLA can affect the universities, then it's a real, real object, <laughs> um, which I assume is the case. <laughs> uh, fourth one, he says, is retroactive effects on its own parts. Uh, object-oriented ontology retroactively affects the lives of the 
four original members, and so forth. So that sense of O is real and not just an aggregate of its cases. Also, uh, for Zalanda, real assemblages can generate their own parts. So a city would be a good example of this. Los Angeles can generate its own institutions uh, that were not there before. Now, the thing is, in Zalanda's book, the list is not systematic. It's just kind of a laundry list. It gives us five interesting criteria, and five is not a very philosophical number, as you know. We're all paranoid systematizers in this field, which means everything's ones, twos, threes, and multiples thereof. There are no prime numbers in philosophy. You can usually break down any philosophical. I've done that in the appendix to Heidegger explained, showing how numbers play out in this philosophy. So we need to look at these uh, criteria of Delanda and see which ones are important, which ones are less important, and how to arrange them, and see what methods we can extract from this system. Uh, first thing to note is that two of these criteria are not really necessary at all. That's the latter two. The retroactive effect on parts and being able to generate its own parts. I can think of plenty of examples of things that could be real that don't do either of those. These tend to be more typical of living entities. Uh, you wouldn't say that a rock generates its own parts, necessarily, or other inanimate things generally don't. Retroactive effect on your own parts is not necessary either. It's, it's quite conceivable that certain things could come together and produce a more general effect without any of them being affected by it. So um, those two are not essential criteria, even though they appear on the line of list. Meanwhile, there are two that are absolutely necessary, I would say. One of them is emergent qualities. If a thing doesn't have emergent qualities, then it's simply an aggregate of pieces. If H2O were not something that had qualities over and above the hydrogen and the oxygen, we wouldn't have any real reason to call it an object. And redundant causation seems to be another thing that is example. This one, this one might be uh, more easily challenged, but I'm going to stick with it. You can, you can imagine that um, it's, it's hard to think of an object that would, a real object that would not have some interchangeability of its parts. Uh, now, what's, what's, what these two features have in common is that both of them involve an object relations with its own parts. Emergent quality says that something is, is something real over and above its parts. What redundant causation says is that the parts can be replaced, and so that the parts themselves are somehow not fully accessible to the thing. What, what it means, if you can take atoms out of your body and replace them with other atoms, what this means is that the singularity of those atoms is not accessed by your body, right? Because all your body is doing is some kind of gross approximation of the value of those atoms and using it for its own purpose. So in other words, what this means, emergent qualities means that your body is not fully explained by the atoms, and redundant causation means the atoms are not fully explained by their use in your body. It's a symmetrical sort of thing. Um, I'm here skipping again to try to save time. What this means, in short, is that there's mutual independence between an object and its pieces, if you're looking downward. This is one feature of a real assemblage. A real assemblage will be one that is something over and above its parts. Its parts are something more than the, than the that the assemblage uh, utilizes. But there's still one of the Delanda's five principles that we haven't talked about yet, and that is objects affecting things at their own scale. This is the Latourian point. That, uh, real actors are, are things that affect other actors. Here we're not looking downward at an object's internal constitution. We're looking outward or upward or horizontally at its relations with outward things. And here, too, we can expect to find uh, the same sort of relations with the parts. For example, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I should also add that in principle, this principle of taken literally is false. It is not really the case, at least for Delanda, that uh, things are only real when they affect other things. I think of the San Andreas fault, which is not currently acting as far as I can feel. 
uh, which I think we would say has a certain reality, uh, regardless of its current inactivity. So if we say that an object has emergent qualities over and above its pieces, we should also say that it has submergent qualities under and beneath its effects. Mm -hmm. Usually people talk about emergence, we should also talk about the submergence. That the thing has to have some kind of reality that it's deeper than its current effects. Why? Because the effects can change uh, from one time to another. Not all qualities are manifest, and it's possible, I believe, that some real qualities might never become manifest. You can see this in the case of your own life. There are things, there are talents you might have that are simply never tapped. You live in the wrong historical era, you live in the wrong conditions. Uh, I don't think it's meaningless to say that those qualities are there in you, they're simply not uh, ever manifested. This is one of the tragedies of human existence, in fact. As my little brother once brazenly put it to my parents when he was not doing well in university, I'm a genius in a field that doesn't yet exist. <laughs> and it turned out to be true. It turned out that the World Wide Web was that field. It took a couple more years for it to be invented. He was very successful at that point. Uh, but his his, I would say that his talent did exist. It simply didn't have the right environment in which to manifest itself. So uh, we find that objects are, just as they are independent from their own component pieces, they are independent from their outer effects or their relations with other things. We saw in the previous case, though, that just as a thing is something over and above its pieces, those pieces are something not exhausted by the thing. Right? The, the, the atoms of an object, or the, the pieces of this podium, are not totally exhausted by the podium. Is that also true um, going in the opposite direction? You're talking not about a thing's relation to its own pieces, but its relation to other objects in the environment. Yes, that's obviously the case. Um, I'm sorry, I'm to skip here, I'm sorry. Well, just as we have redundant causation, where you can interchange the atoms that are the components of an object, you can also uh, see that an object will treat other objects outside of it as interchangeable falsely. And the, the term I came up with this was, came up for this is obtuse uh, causation. <laughs> if a, for example, a flame could burn multiple cotton balls, not realizing that their singularity is, is different in each case. It sees them all as, as equally burnable. So what, what I was getting at with all of this is that we have four features of real objects, uh, which is it's, it's independent from its pieces. Its pieces are independent from it. It's independent from other objects in the environment. They are independent from it. So that's four features. And by simply reversing those, we can come up with four kinds of pseudo-objects. Or four features of a pseudo-object. Uh, four features that indicate that a thing does not have reality, does not have the reality that we think it does. And I've come up with terms for these to make them more memorable. If a thing lacks emergent qualities, the traditional term for that is an aggregate, which Leibniz distinguishes from a substance. You know, list eight random objects in any of the toilet and you need sights, and you're going down in your aggregates, probably. Uh, something that's not an object taken together. They're individual objects taken together. It's not a systematic new object. If it lacks submergent qualities, remember submergent qualities are when the thing has reality over and above what it's making happen, then it's merely an event. And an event is usually viewed as a positive thing in contemporary continental philosophy. I view that as a, as a negative thing, a non-object, when something's merely an event. If something lacks redundant causation, meaning that you can't replace its pieces with similar but new pieces, then I would say it's merely a set, which is another term usually viewed positively in contemporary continental philosophy by the humans. But I don't think it is. You can't just extensively define an object by saying it's this, 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 and this. There has to be some principle of unity to it over and above those elements. And if it lacks what I call obtuse causation, then it is merely an impact, for lack of a better term, which means it's, it's nothing more than its effect on other things. Right? Um, 
So to repeat those, an object isn't an aggregate because it's more than a collection of things. It's something that unifies those things. It's not a set because it's a unifying principle. It's not just an extensive and arbitrary collection of pointing at seven or eight things and saying that's a, that's a set. It's a kind of internal structure, as you were saying about Bud's earlier. Uh, it's not an event because it's deeper than any event. An object can enter into many different events. And finally, an object isn't an impact because other entities are deeper than that object is too. Fire's effect on the cotton, on all the cotton balls taken individually, does not exhaust either the fire or the cotton. But how do we express all these four features in practical terms? There's a way, of, one way of doing it in each case. Uh, how do we reverse the error of seeing objects as events? We do that through counterfactuals. This is already a method. You can imagine objects in different situations, imagine what the effects would be. And this is important because I think this is something that's actually weak in the tourist theory. I love the tourist theory, but he's not very good at counterfactuals. He's better, A and T is better at explaining things that have already happened and trying to trace all the elements that have contributed to that situation. Um, so, you know, imagining Lincoln in ancient Rome, how might he have played out there? Imagine a Middle East with an Iranian atomic bomb or, mm. or imagine an invaded Iran instead. What are the possible things that would happen in either of those cases? These help us allude to the thing as a style. Lincoln isn't something simply that was confined to that particular historical period in that country, but is something over and above that that could be translated. What would be, you know, there are computers that do this. They take on top of old Smokey and turn it into a Bach fugue. Um, <laughs> that's not me. You can do that. You can do that kind of thing. Um, so that's the first thing we do, counterfactuals. This will be the first method for getting at the reality of things. Yeah. Second would be what I call hyperbolic analysis, which I've used in three publications. This is reversing the error of impact. This is reversing the tendency to see things in terms of the effects they have. Um, instead of critique, also, we, what I've done, I did this in the article on Zalanda, I did this in the book on the tour, and I did it in the book on Mayasu, which hasn't been published yet. In order to look at the impact of these philosophers, what I did is not critique mistakes that they made, but imagine that they have total success. Imagine that they become the dominant philosopher on the planet 20 years from, 30 years from now. And then you imagine what would still be missing. What would still be missing if Mayasu were the dominant world philosopher in 2015? Don't, don't fuss around with detailed mistakes that he makes, but grant him everything and see what's still missing. And that's what I did at the end of the book. Um, okay, now working in the other direction. Oh, I, no, let me say something else about that. If a philosophy cannot survive the hyperbolic test, then it's less than a real philosophy, I would say. So if you, if you take some minor article that somebody wrote about a detail, a perfectly respectable minor article about some detailed point, try to say, imagine that this is the most important philosophical text of the 21st century. You can't survive that test, obviously. You need work of a certain level, a certain comprehensiveness, and that's a more real philosophy. The more it can pass that sort of imaginative test, the more real it is. Okay, now the other two are a little harder. Um, what we're trying to do here is talk about the mutual independence of a thing and its pieces, and its components. Uh, the thing is not reducible to its pieces, and the pieces are not reducible to the thing. And we actually do this all the time. In one sense, we call this simulation, where you're removing a thing from its pieces and simply trying to treat it as a formal model. You could be testing the behavior of a tornado of the 1976 Cincinnati Reds during my sports writing career <laughs> without having to reassemble all the physical pieces that made those things. <coughs> you're simply testing them uh, and see what will happen. And what I've realized while thinking about this is that paradoxically, a thing is more real the more it can be simulated, the more it can be parodied. Mm. You can parody good poets better than bad ones, can't mm. you? Um, on my blog, if you go to the search box and enter Trockel, you'll find all of my simulated Trockel poems <laughs> in the 1990s. A friend of mine and I invented a little computer program that would do this, and they're hilarious. Some are better than others, of course. Um, some of the most vicious parodies I've ever read of a poet were Rilke, 
they don't make me like Wilka any less, but they're spot on parodies. I really enjoyed my article on Lovecraft writing a parody of Lovecraft writing a story about a Cairo hotel. And I'd like to write a full length study of that. In fact, my Lovecraft craft book will probably contain a number of parodies. I think it's a valuable method. If imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, then simulation and parody are an even more sincere form of flattery. The less real something is, the harder it is to simulate. It's harder to simulate a bad writer or a bad philosopher than it is a good one. In other words, the style of a thing is not just an aggregate of all the deeds it has done. The style of a thing is something over and above those that can be simulated. Um, and so here I would say, against some Luddite principles, if there were, truly were a computer able to write new Shakespeare plays at will, I think this would be outstanding. I think this would be a tribute to Shakespeare, not some sort of cheapening of his greatness. I think it would, it would show that the style is something perhaps more real than the, the mass of works that one person wrote. Um, and that leaves one last <coughs> feature of pseudo-objects, which is reducing them to sets, reducing them to pointing extensive number of things and saying it's just a set, it's not a real thing with the unifying principle. Um, we already saw that simulation shows that Rilke or earthquakes are substantial forms independent of their material components. They can be removed and put on a computer and, and generate effects. What about the reverse? Is there a reverse situation in which we can show that those material components are actually real beneath all simulation? And actually, yes, um, the answer to this is accidents. When things happen, we don't expect. And in what sense are accidents method? A method? Well, all the time. This is what falsification is about in science. Mm -hmm. right? you're, you're, you're finding accidental things that happen to a theory that, were, that weren't expected. Uh, things that point to the independence of the material components from the model that you had. So that would be the fourth uh, method to use. Mm -hmm. So now there are four methods, the counterfactuals, the hyperbolic method, simulation, and falsification. And you could say that humanities tend to benefit more from the first two, while the natural sciences tend to benefit more from the latter two. But that's not necessarily the case. There are, there are significant exceptions. And what this suggests to me is that the, if this way of setting out the different methods is, is valid, the division between the human and natural sciences is actually an imperfect approximation to the real differences, the real fissure running through human knowledge, which has to do with the kinds that show independence, the kinds of knowledge that show independence of a thing from its pieces and the kinds that show the independence of a thing from its outer effects, uh, which are not strictly identifiable with other the sciences and the humanities. So, actually, I want to end there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. So, questions for uh, Ian and Graham? decided to just leave him as president. I don't even know if this makes any sense at all. And I mean, doesn't that impact what the, what the Israeli presidency means? I mean, does that, does, does that become a... Because I'm just trying to think of an example of where, you think, where the, the parts can't really just be swapped out. I mean, my original example was like, say we accidentally hire a schizophrenic to be the president of the United States. Uh, imagine, the, and I don't necessarily imagine this, but a schizophrenic thing last it was perfectly legal to hire a schizophrenic, but it wouldn't be like hiring a, a, a person in, in kind of a very conventional, mainstream understanding of what a person is. Does that actually transform what the presidency is? You know what I'm saying? 
I'm trying to decide whether to take the Sharon example or the schizophrenia example. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough choice. Well, I mean, the Sharon example actually offers a Lincoln Two bodies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that a classic example of King's two bodies? Well, in a way, yeah. I, I, I think relational perspectives, you know, relationalisms are kind of trying to deal with this anxiety uh, through a sort of repression. I mean, they're, you know, one of the things that's traumatic about objects is precisely because you can have situations in which Sharon has gone into a coma. And he's still president, right? You know, he still has that particular quality, and it's terrible, right? Uh, and and um, you know, so reducing an object to its relations, or saying that it is its relations, would be a way of uh, warding off, or, you know, trying to to avoid this this horror of the malformed relation. You've got me stumped as I'm trying to translate Sharon into these terms. <laughs> So I'm asking to jump on this if they want, as I'm thinking. You know, a lot of times people ask me, you know, they'll, they'll point out something like, um, well, my body. And, and I made this argument against you initially when we first started talking about object-oriented ontology. You know, my body is dependent on oxygen. It's dependent on, uh, you know, right. food, gravity, and so on and so forth. And what if it gets catapulted into outer space? Right. But then I no longer exist. And, um, but it does. Life is a local manifestation of a body, right? It's still that object, right? Uh, it's just no longer able to locally manifest itself in the beating heart. And the answer I gave, I think, was that you will die, but it's you that will die. It's not your relation with oxygen that will die. Yeah. So yeah. the autonomy is still preserved. It's simply that the survival is not preserved. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a question. I think it's interesting that you're bringing up um, the idea of objects in relation to sets and saying that, that you know, an object is something that cannot simply be a set or a mm -hmm. sort of kind of. Obviously, we know from, from Badiou that um, you know, any object would be something like the, the counting of a number of elements as a one. Right? Yeah. Um, so, my question would be. How then can we ever differentiate a set from an object in the sense of why would it, if we say the root, we nominate the root, why is that not a counting of one of the component elements in the same way that we could say, you know, the, the uh, clock, the fly, and the screen, right? Yeah. And count those as one. And or a simpler example might be round objects in the room, which would have properties if we said go collect all the round objects in the room or go play with all the round objects. Right. Consider the fact that these objects have been brought here, but sort of take it as imminent. Uh, 
state. So how, I guess those are the two questions. This is actually my biggest problem with Badiou, the fact that a one is always counted as one. That's not what a one is. A one is something that has this autonomy from its pieces, from its external environments. If you say that a, th a thing is unified simply because it's counted as one, you're giving the, po the power to the counter. counter. Yeah. And even when Badiouians sometimes try to say, well, that's not a it's not a human, it's a subject, whatever that means, apart from It's humans. very vague. Very vague, and so... Um, uh, well, isn't there some confusion there between counting of, as one and the, what he calls a body? Because a body is much closer to what you're calling an object, it seems to me, than yeah. just counted as one. Yes, and I'm going to try to write something on Logics of Worlds this year to explain why I'm still not satisfied. But uh, for, certainly for being an event, it doesn't... It just doesn't make any sense. In fact, the counting of the one could create a one. Because then what, what, you're, what you're counting is still units. How are those units? Are those also counted as ones? Or are they ones in their own right? And so on. Right, but so why would you say the set of all-round things is somehow substantively different than the room? Why, why would one be an object and the other not? Maybe the room isn't an object either. That's also up for question. Uh, but mm. the criteria both have to pass are the same. Right? They have to be independent of their pieces. They have to be independent of their mm. environment. That's why I gave these four methods. Can you... I don't know. In the case of the round objects, I don't know how you would counterfactualize that mm -hmm. or, or give a hyperbolic meaning of that. Yeah, I'm um, fine with the with the room and the, the set of round things being objects. Um, it's just that the they're they are different from one another. If you took all of the objects in the room and uh, <laughs> put them in some box, this would be different from the room. So I, I have this like incredibly indiscriminate sense of, of what exists, which is which has been different from, from Graham's position. Yeah. Um, and and you know this gets me out of a lot of trouble because I can just say, well, yeah, sure. There's there's the set of the set of round things uh, counts as a as thing, as does the room. That's fine. That's fine for me. But I do agree with this this critique of of, of the count as one. Um, I mean, it, maybe it's useful for for certain ways of orienting, but um, but it can't be thought of as the the way by which objects come into being. Right. Yeah. Which is not what that says. No, no, but this is what, so, I mean, when, when you sort of find you and object-oriented thinking collide, this is the question that, that comes up. And so the answer is, well, there's sort of an incompatibility, and that's kind of that. You can still like but you if you want. Can yeah, you so say yeah. a little bit about that, Ken? Uh, about how that's not well, Baidu's theory of how objects come into being? Because, um, you know, it seems to me that if I do ontology, you have to have this transition between inconsistent multiplicity and consistent multiplicities, and an object would be a consistent multiplicity that's the result of a... Well, the theory of is one. Again, you know, there is this whole, like, you know, being an event logics of world sort of thing going on here, and, you know, the whole consistent inconsistent multiplicity is, you know, not really carried through. Mm. And the, the structure of an object is just completely distinct from that. Um, and it does seem to me that that ought to be somehow a primary subtext of people doing object-oriented ontology. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to hear actually what, what Graham has to say about that. I'm still digesting Logics of Worlds is the answer, but I, am, I do have something on tap. Uh, I've been asked to write an article for an anthology about this, and I'm going to make it more larger project. No, I, it, it seems to me that it's, it's a completely different vocabulary, yeah. and the counting of count as one is not, it's just doesn't figure at all. Right. And really, the interesting mm. question is how bodies are put together, out of objects. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, so... We were responding to being an event in these remarks. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. that's almost unfair. That was, you know, how many years ago was that really conceived, you know, you know the 80s. All um, right, but that's still how a lot of people are seeing both you, right? Yeah. Logics yeah. of worlds are still barely being assimilated. So yeah. and people are still defending the count as one as the standard. And so we, it is fair for us to say, no, that's not enough. 
but it's certainly not what he calls an object. That's, that's well, I had thought that the transcendental was like the structure of a situation and uh, Baidu's being an event. Um, and so he was now talking about appearing in worlds, which was a result of these operations. That's a, yeah. it's a theory of, um, of how to think the constitution of an object through um, imminent relations and wrong uh, objects in the world. Mm -hmm. That is to say, like, you know, formalism in that book gives you a way of thinking determination of individuation, which I think is a question that was asked earlier about how the individuation of an object can be secured to object only philosophy yeah. without the sort of theory yeah. of, of individuation. Um, and, uh, and so for Bandi, like, I agree with Ken that the third, you know, the, the part of Logique des Mondes where uh, there's a whole theory, a theory of the object without a subject, is really crucial text that demands some sort of, I mean, like a, a response. Well, yeah, but, it, but, it, but, it, but it doesn't really. I mean, like, let me let me clarify what I mean by that. <laughs> there very well may be. I mean, I'm like dead serious about that. It's it's a respectable um, and respectful comment. I think there may very well be a Baduian object-oriented position, and that would be great. I don't think I would be bothered by that. Um, but we don't necessarily need to account for it, right? Like, it's up to somebody else to come up with the Baduian, the purely Baduian object-oriented position. I don't think we need to sort of recuperate. Um, the various theories that, that you know, each of us has a, a somewhat distinct version of this which has been similar properties. Um, it, it doesn't bother me at all that, that, you know, there may not be some response to but you. And, the fact that he doesn't use the multiplicity, the consistent multiplicities of being an event are produced by a subject body. Right, I mean, the subject is specific. This is a, this is a, a broader observation about the yeah. philosophy in general, though, right? That, right. that we don't, there, there's no necessity to, to account for things all the time. It's possible just to ignore them, actually. <laughs> you know, and say, well, I'm just not going to bother. Yeah, but Ian, I think that would be, we are speaking about the view. So it would be like um, criticizing Kant's uh, aesthetics by referring to the critique of pure reason. I mean, there's, a, there's an explicit theory of the object laid out in published texts. Yes, but there's, there's also a theory of consistent multiplicities of being events, and that deserves to be criticized from our standpoint. And you'll, you'll see a, a critique from me of logics and worlds soon enough. That's, yeah, that's terrific. I think if you have a question, just if I can finish. Uh, that that, um, that Levy's bringing up is the role of the subject here, which I do think that um, is underestimated, uh, underplayed in some object-oriented uh, thinking. Um, in fact, it's not a subject who is counting the one, for example. No, yeah, that's what I just said. It's not that. Mm -hmm. Oh, good, because yeah. that, I thought you had said the, the opposite. No, it's not a subject. In fact, the subject is produced in this very procedure, occasionally, sometimes, you know, under all these certain conditions, right? But it's not somehow a pre preconceived subject, right? Uh, and but, so, but there's still always going to be someone there seeing it, at least until you get the logics of worlds. There, there may be somebody there, but but in in, in, uh, in being an event, uh, let's say at least as assumed. But in logics of worlds, it's not there at all. Right. What the complaint I hear sometimes about what I say against being an event, people say, no, it's not a it's not a subject that's actively constituting this count. But that doesn't really matter. The activity of the passivity doesn't matter. That's kind of like that's the point. And the point is that the subject, the subject is that which arises in a, another type of procedure, another type of counting, right? Yeah, but still, you're still going to have an observer. There, there's no such thing as an, in, in, in the internet, there's no such thing as an internal structure, right? It's, it's, they're sets, they're extensive. You don't have an internal unity of, of things. Well, in the event, there's a subject that would be referred to as the count as one. Mm -hmm. It's just needed to structure the situation. And, and the point of the view is that each situation has a different operator. But none of these operators are distinctly human. For example, he says that the operator for ontology is deduction, right? But um, for, uh, deduction. 
induction. And, you know, for example, the operation of the lung in the sphere. But there's no presupposition of anything like a transcendental subject. Well, I think there are kind of hominids at work here, right? You know, there's there's Baidu's theory of the subject, and of course it's not Baidu's subject in, in, in Baidu's sense right. that does count right. as one. That's right. And then there's the subject of phenomenology, yeah. of, you know, Kantian idealism, right. and so on and so forth. Right. And there's this weird thing, this, this operation of the count as one, who's doing the operating, uh, which seems to be the issue here. Um, now, if it's if if it's machines, if it, like my feeds my seashells at uh, Nag's head, uh, you know, if, if if that is an operator that counts as one, I, I think that's pretty badass and cool. But um, <laughs> but I mean, he never really seems to talk that way. I mean, it always seems like it's going to be some sort of human agency or yes, know, social yes. agency that's unifying these uh, these fields. One doesn't necessarily need to look at the places where he might talk about an object. I mean, I think one thing about the object-oriented ontology is it's given a very expansive notion of the object. Right. And um, in a sense, one might think in Badu, what, you know, I mean, this traverses a lot of his work at least, um, you know, his four generic procedures, um, and the way they function, which in a sense, um, you know, Again, one could debate about the relative position of the subject in there, but you know, interestingly, um, in a way, again, I'm not sure I would even agree with this, but one could say, well, the subject on some level is the ontological position or the mathematics of philosophy, which is sort of outside of the generic positions. But you have these, you know, kind of strange operators in that use work that, in some ways, I think function not entirely unlike. I'm not saying completely, but have some of the dimensions of what has been discussed here in terms of uh, you know, um, interactions of objects or non-interactions of objects. I mean, that's interesting about the generic procedures. You don't really have them in combination. I mean, you could say almost they were drawn from each other in a certain, uh, you know, admittedly kind of strange way in Becky's work. Um, I mean, even when he looks at poems, which is a, you know, he has a particular kind of analysis, this is on another level, but, um, you know, that, that, you know, one might say that he's making into an object and not necessarily from the position of the subject making something an object. I mean, again, that's debatable. But but it seems like there's ways that, you know, without that you calling it an object per se, that um, things like objects might be said function as work. So I mean, I don't think it's an irrelevant um, type of uh, exercise to, to be thinking about since that you is clearly so formative for so many people, you know. There's certainly nothing like an inconsistent multiplicity in object-oriented intelligence whatsoever. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's really the issue. Yep. I don't think anyone's rejecting the venue, though. There, there is something. <laughs> there is something. No. Like Where? There's an infinite regress. That's not an inconsistent multiplicity. That's an infinite layers of consistent multiplicities, if you're going to use this terminology. I mean, but well, that, that itself is an inconsistent multiplicity. No, it's not. The infinite <laughs> regress of both. What makes it consistent? You've got properly defined units. They're all right up in a chain. If the multiplicity of those units was consistent, then it would be a consistent multiplicity. And if it's not consistent... No, no, only if I accept that use velocity would it be a consistent multiplicity. I'm saying that there's nothing... Look at the features of the inconsistent multiplicity in that you. None of those features can be found anywhere in the object-oriented position. But, it, but an infinite regress is a multiplicity of elements. Sure. Or it wouldn't be an inconsistent... But, but, but I mean, if it's not totalized, 
that it's inconsistent. No, the key feature of five years inconsistent multiplicities is that they're without one in any way whatsoever. They Where is the Infinity does not mean non-totalizability. Mason makes this very clear in his work, right? So an infinite regress is not a non-totalizable regress. Infinity, right? It's, all I'm saying is that if something is, if something is a non-totalizable um, composition of elements, then it's inconsistent and it's a multiplicity. I'm saying, I mean, if you can't render it consistent by totalizing the field of those uh, objects or entities or elements or sets, then it's an inconsistent multiplicity. It can't be rendered consistent by its equality. I mean, it's just a... You're saying it's a way that it is simply something that can Yes, Mayerson talks about how there are infinitely many pieces on a rope where you can cut it. That's still totalizable. <laughs> just because they're infinite doesn't mean that it's not totalizable. So I would disagree that the infinite regress of objects is not totalizable. Like it's infinite, yes. That's what I think. Uh, that's what I think an encounter with the mathematics of the infinite becomes important. Because we have to know what we're speaking about when we speak about the infinite regress. And that's a, it's a mathematical concept. I mean, Arguably, you know, but to, to if we're going to speak about infinities, then mathematics is a discourse on that sort of thing. So it's just, for me, it's a sort of fundamental point, because the point at which a philosophy gives way onto something like an infinite regress, the reason why that's a problem for thought is, is it's a question of what are we really talking about, you know? And so Bakhti's whole reason for saying that mathematics is ontology is to actually know what we're talking about when we say a word about infinite. I think this would be another point of divergence, the, the, the idea that being and thinking are identical to one another. Yeah. And that, that I don't think any realist ontology can uh, adopt that thesis. Um. <laughs> which he probably proclaims even in Logics of Worlds, being and thinking the same, which we would never say. Uh, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to make sure that you did some of the points that you uh, There was a question from Twitter. It's another question from Robert Jackson. Okay. And he wants to know, is, is, a, is a unity a pseudo-object, an aesthetic unity? An aesthetic unity? I would, I would like to know what that means. He's distant, so it's hard to get a yeah. quick answer to that. Robert Jackson is sitting in Plymouth in the UK right now. <laughs> yeah. This cat's here, it's my yeah. time. This cat's it's late. So, uh, <laughs> one in the morning. He's always asking me aesthetics questions. I would say, actually, this is an interesting example because there are true and false aesthetic unities, I'm sure. What's the difference between a good and a bad artwork? We mm -hmm. have to be able to distinguish between those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, can you parody it? That's, that's a good rough rule of method. Can you parody the artwork? Can you parody the artist? You did conflate the good with the real there, the more, in your analogy. I was wondering if that was just an accident. Uh, no, no, you're right, I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, just, no, it's true, it's true. As, as yeah. a, you're right, the more simulatable the object is, the more likely it's real, the more parody, the more you can parody the, the poem. That's different from it. I'm betraying my medieval biases, yeah. I guess. <laughs> the changeability of the transcendental. <laughs> yes. um, and the last question, by the way. Oh, okay. Uh, you gave a series of conditions for what we constitute a real object. And at the beginning, I mean, you also noticed that you do not think that there's you know, just all objects are real, there's also sexual objects. Although you said at one point at the beginning of your presentation that reality structure of two sides, sexual and real. But we've, you know, you've, you've mentioned in the past that there are something like purely sexual objects, right? But there are objects that can 
teddy bear. Right, but they have some relation to real objects. It's just that they might, the real object may not represent, uh, resemble a teddy bear as we know it. Okay, so yeah, uh, my, my question was, was going in that direction. This is basically to ask, uh, so do you, have you developed some series of conditions for what constitutes or how uh, intentional objects or central objects are individuated as well? Just like you gave me this video. In a way, that's easier because we are the ones who decide what else. Maybe on the side, of it. intentional objects are presented to us. Whatever we recognize as a unity is an intentional object. Right, but, but of course, uh, since we're transplanted intentional of our central domain outside of human comprehension, right? yes. we cannot simply say that uh, intentional objects are whatever you can identically sort of spread unity to us, unless we want to revert back to this one. Since presumably the objects in themselves are, you know, they're entering into intentional relations within you know, intentional objects and so on. So, I mean, what is outside of human prevention? Right? If, if, if I want to ask, what constitutes There are no intentional objects outside human prevention or outside pretension of some other object. Right? They're, they're imminent, it's imminent objectivity. That's the definition of intentionality. It's a mistake to say the intentional object is something you're pointing at outside. It's a real object. Um, and I would also say that we don't make mistakes about intentional objects. We make mistakes about what their essential and accidental qualities are. That's why the analyses are needed. But we never make, you know, I never look at this and say, actually, this isn't an intentional object. It's all of this together was an intentional object. Because we're the ones who decide what an intentional object is. We just might be wrong about the essential qualities versus the accidental ones. So this is a really good place for your point about obtuse causation, right? Uh, you know, yes. You can be obtuse about objects, confusing with one another. That's right. Distinguish them. And so we have good a point. analysis of racism. What's the, how does the racism one end with? It's a kind of obtusity. Okay, I see what you mean. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a generalization. Right. Well, listen, I think we need to uh, complete this object. Wrap <laughs> 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 it, give it to right. the light. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you all for a fabulous so yeah i mean obviously i'm using the train so we want to say that these two objects are different. I know. Yeah. 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 Yeah.